Russ, I can't believe this is already our fifth show of the year. This is our fifth podcast of 2022. I only remember doing two of them or something like that. What? what we, <laughs> I'll have to look back and see what we did. It's, it's, uh, it's that fast, huh? Wow. Yeah. Time's going by. It's been, quite a, it's been quite a whirlwind. Uh, you know, a, lot of, a lot of work in the last month, not just on the podcast, but other things too. Yeah. And I guess it all just got kind of packed together in a kind of snowball-like, uh, you know, form, you know? Could be. Know. Yeah, maybe, yeah. you know, you relax a bit around the holidays and then you have to get back into the groove and yeah. things just get pounded out. And right. uh, wow, this, yeah, I have to keep looking back and remembering, oh, when did we listen to that? And when I go looking for something, it's really <laughs> hard to find. Yeah, it's really hard to find. Yeah. Well, now it's getting hard, especially we, we have to get some kind of database yeah. uh, going. But uh, yeah, because now we're, we're up to episode what? This is 48. This is episode 48. Oh, coming up to the 50th episode yeah. very soon. And I was just looking to reference something earlier, and it took me forever to, to find it because I couldn't remember <laughs> yeah, get, what episode it was on. Yeah, yeah, they're becoming too many episodes. Once we get up to episode two hundred or three hundred, you know, a few years down the road, we're not going to remember wow. anything. You know, we're going to need a database. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Anyway, so tell me about this podcast. What 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 is this called? This is the Adult <laughs> Music Podcast, and we feature music for the mature mind. No K-pop. No hip-hop, nothing else that ends with P except some bebop, maybe. Uh, and we time love bemop, too, because we interviewed Gil Rose a while back. Bemop, that's right. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so it's episode 48. Every week you'll hear, well, almost every episode we have six new recordings, three classical, three jazz, and some things in between or uh, that hit upon other categories. Mm-hmm. And uh, we'll provide you with all the access information to listen to them on streaming and the label information if you're interested in purchasing them. Uh, well, you'll find the links for Spotify and Apple Music for everything we'll discuss that's available on streaming. And uh, also at the top of the description, you can get all of the music in one place in one playlist on Deezer, our preferred streaming platform. You can also check out our podcast there as well as on all the other major platforms i don't know what you're listening to us on now but we're on spotify apple music uh, a number of smaller uh, ones and our host site is podbean so if you don't see any of the links to the music or other information you can always jump over to podbean and find all of the information for everything we talk about there now if you enjoy the podcast please follow or subscribe on whatever app or platform you're listening to us on. If you take a moment to give us a ranking or write a review, that helps us get listed in the browsing categories and that helps us get new listeners and make our audience grow, which makes us happy. And then if you'd like to contact us directly with any comments or questions, we'd like to hear from you. Our email address is adultmusicpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. And speaking of that, we got a bunch of emails this week. Uh, yeah. Well, before you do that, we should mention that we now have a Facebook page. There's an adult music Facebook page. Feel free to um, visit that. We're going to be posting some stuff on there, too, as well as just the podcast. So yeah. You can check that out and leave comments as well. Kind of. I, I really don't like Facebook. so uh, I, I don't either, but, yeah, you know. But uh, anyway, we figured put it up there. We so all the episodes are up there. We need already. people to find us. 
Yeah, we'll have to put some more other interesting tidbits and things yeah. there. So, uh, what, what we need is a web page, but we'll get that up to that eventually. We're still growing. That, get to that eventually. Right. Yeah. So we got a nice uh, email from Mr. Craig Brand. Yes, thank you, Craig Brand. Thank you, Craig. We featured. And thank you, uh, Craig Brand's fans for tuning in because he yeah. gave us a nice, uh, you know, post on his um on his Facebook page. Facebook page. That's right. Maybe yeah. even somewhere else on his. I don't know. I didn't check his Could website. Be. I'll have to I look. Yeah, yeah, we had him in uh, the uh, fretboard free for all our guitar <laughs> <laughs> episode a couple of weeks ago. We really enjoyed his recording. Uh, if you haven't uh, checked that out, uh, past, present, future. Uh, it's a really good one. Uh, really nice recording. Nice original compositions and his right, great thank playing. You for, so check. Yeah, that thank out. you for yeah. the uh, shout out, Craig Brand. We really appreciate yeah. it. And we got uh, contacted by. Uh, Spanish record label who's going to send us some more of their releases so that will yeah, be yeah uh, that was for the re- label that was on the the Bach reimagined yeah re- reinventions, Bach reinventions Bach reinventions that's right uh, uh, which Moises was a few, B. Sanchez yeah, yeah Moises B. Sanchez a so, few maybe three it was it was before the uh, year end episode yeah. right so yeah, yeah I so, had to look back for that I'd forgotten when we did it <laughs> yeah so that see what else they've got going on and uh yeah, we're waiting yeah, thanks, for some... Thanks, thank you for that. Uh, to the, do we know the label's name? I looked uh, it up and I didn't write it down. I'm so bad. <laughs> yeah, it's hard, it was hard to find uh, what else they've got going on. Um, yeah. But it's... Um, yeah, let's see. Uh, March Vivo. Label. Yeah, March yeah. Vivo label. Thank you for contacting yeah, Camila us too. Fernandez got in touch. So we'll see right. what uh, other new releases they have going on there. And uh, we're also waiting for some uh, more Renitsky. Yeah, and, uh, we, we heard uh, there's uh, some more coming yeah. out on on, dig, on digital streaming services, and we're we're supposedly getting some discs sent to us too. We're so, getting some advanced yeah, copies though, so, so we can't really yeah, <laughs> share we'll those see. with anybody. We'll, we'll find yeah. out. Yeah. So yeah, that's the way it should be. Send us <laughs> send us music. And, well, yeah, uh, we'll CDs to would it. be great. Yeah. Or, yeah, or at least make, make us this living, make this our living so that we can write off CDs on our taxes. Taxes. That's really my dream. <laughs> you know? It's yeah. a business expense. Yes. If you could do that retroactively, you'd, you'd have- Oh, uh, I'd be all set. Yeah, you could yeah. retire now. I could retire now. Yeah, exactly. I, I am a little worried about um, where all my CDs are going to go once I- I told once you. I'm, Gone from the face of the earth. Right, right at the bottom of that well, you put my name. Right. Well, in there. you're you're welcome to them, but because okay. you would you would appreciate them. But you're near my age, so That's I right. think I, you, pro- you probably won't have them for long unless I could some, go out first. some terrible accident happens. <laughs> yeah, we have to make a archive in your name or something like that. Yeah. yeah, I need I need some any any younger uh, listeners out there who want my massive classical. It's, it's actually everything classical, jazz, pop. I got everything in there. Rock and Maybe roll. Maybe they'll even make a new indexing, like, you know, th- mm. named after you for how you organize them. Uh, just like uh, classical it's, composers. It's have that. not yeah. possible to follow anymore. Oh, okay. Because I, there are so too. many of them that I can't, like, put new ones on the, the shelves, like, where I have them alphabetized. So I have to just kind of go by, these came out this year, these came out this year, and every year I have, like, a new shelf. Wow, <laughs> it's really because I can't go back to the A's like three <laughs> shelves before and just move everything. It would just take forever, right? Yeah. Well, what do we got uh, going on the uh, music burner this evening? Yeah, it's, it's speaking of of um, music that uh, 
um, you, you, like, they can't be downloaded or they yeah, that's right. can't be downloaded. We're starting with a Hyperion Records release. Now, I love the Hyperion Records label. It's one of my, it's probably my favorite classical label, um, but they don't um, stream their music. You have to buy it all. And um, we're going to start with uh, one of my favorite pianists and one of adult music's favorite composers. The composer is Carl Philipp Emanuel Bach, also known as C.P.E. Bach. Um, he was, now I got this wrong on an earlier episode, so you don't want to, if you're doing a research paper, you don't want to quote us <laughs> because we often, we're just talking like we're in a bar here. We're not, we, we do That's some right. research, but you know, when we're talking off the cuff, we're not looking everything up. We don't have uh, a Jamie like Joe Rogan does. So he's you know correcting us and looking things up for us. So sometimes we get things wrong. Uh, Caulfield Emanuel Bach was the fifth Bach son and the second surviving Bach son. Uh, I said in an earlier episode that he was the second Bach son, and there was one before him that died, but that's not true. Um, yeah, Wilhelm Friedrich. I should look this up just so I don't mess it up again. Hold on. Um, let's see. Uh, he's the fifth child and second surviving son of Johann Sebastian and Maria Barbara. And Wilhelm Friedemann was the oldest surviving son. And there was, I think there was one before him that died in childbirth. Um, okay, the pianist is Marc-Andre Amlan. Now, we're going to talk about the pronunciation of this guy's name because we were kind of discussing it a lot. I, I'm a big fan of Marc-Andre Amlan. And really? Because I French like Marc-Andre Hamlin. <laughs> okay, well, there you go. Um, I've I've been listening to his music. His his um, I actually own every Hyperion release that he's um, he's put out, and uh, I got the pronunciation of his name from the Japanese kana, which is Amlan. And I was listening to some podcasts where he was interviewed, and he's they pronounce his name Amlan too. But Russ has discovered a video of Mark Andre himself pronouncing his name as Hamelin. Like yeah. the you know the the the, the, the Pied German Piper. town where the Pied Piper comes from, yeah. And now I'm all confused. I <laughs> does he pronounce it two ways? Is he um, is he um, you know sort of um, you know just for the American audience who just insists on saying everything with an English accent? Is he saying Hamelin because that's what they say? And he's just going for the Amelon with the the French audiences and the French Canadian audiences. I don't know. We'll have to ask him one day. Maybe we'll get in touch with someone who, who knows him and find out this mystery. I have a similar situation like this. Now, we never say our names on this, our full names on this uh, podcast, but my family name is Italian, and it's Vezzuto, okay? And now I'm American, and people say Vezzuto, and that's how I grew up, okay? But then I went to Italy, and everybody called me Michael Vezzuto. It's got a two Zs, or two Zs if you're British. ZZ. Now it's easy, and that's pronounced like a TZ in English, right? Like pizza. So you'd say Vezzuto. And, um, but you know, there was the, the famous uh, Yankees shortstop Phil Rizzuto. So people thought I was, holy cow. People thought that I was related to him, but I'm not because my name starts with a V and his starts with an R. And, um, mine's spelled with an E and his is with an I. So they're, they're different, but they have the same endings. So anyway, these days I have decided that uh, yeah, people can say pronounce my name the way they want, but I if they're going to ask me, I'm going to say it's pronounced the Italian way, Vezzuto, because I want them for just that one fraction of a second when they're saying my name to sing and be happy. 
Because Italian names have to be sung, don't they? You don't really ever say an Italian name. Hmm. You're right. I'm just spreading happiness that. around the world by telling people to pronounce my name the Italian yeah. way. All right. There you go. So please call me Michael Vezzuto and uh, buy my book, Extreme Music. Yeah, I recommend Anyway, it. speaking of extreme music. <laughs> <laughs> this is extreme, though. This is really good. No, it's not extreme, but it is kind of, uh, well, it's, I don't want to say it's odd. It's great, actually. Yeah. Okay, now for, let me give you a little, um, C.P.E. Bach, the, the, the second surviving Bach son, um, has been a favorite of Russ and, Russ's and mine since we heard, um, a CD, a, a two, a two CD release by Harmonia Mundi in the year 2011. So that's like 11 years ago, mm. um, by Andrea Steyer and the Freiburger Baroque Orchestra, uh, Petra Mulians, uh, of his keyboard concertos. And on this album, he's played some on the harpsichord, and Steyer, like, got his sense of humor, and somehow everything just connected. So did the Freiburger Baroque Orchestra, and I've since become a big fan of both. And since that time, we've been listening to just about every CPE Bach recording that came out, and he's been getting more and more popular. Okay, um, so as I said, he's the fifth, the fifth child and second surviving son of Johann Sebastian and Maria Barbara. Um, the um, let me okay, I'll get into this stuff later. Okay, um, this release on Hyperion is played by I'm going to say Mark Andre Amlan. I'll stick to the tradition here. We're in Japan. I'm going to say it the way they say it. Okay, um, this recording is absolutely fantastic I have to say um, one of the things we look for when we're listening to a CB Bach recording is does this pianist or does the, do these artists get CPE's quirky sense of humor in his music because I've heard recordings by professional pianists where they just play through it like it's Mozart or something or Haydn mm. and even that music requires a little bit of um, you know sort of um, you know understanding of like what's going on to make it register but here you really have to be on your toes because there are a lot of like quick changes of rhythm some yeah. sudden uh sforzato you know chords sort of like you hear in beethoven and in fact i'm pretty sure that's where beethoven got the idea from um and um you know, all, all sorts of quirky things happening you know false cadences and in unexpected places things like that and I'm happy to say that Mark Andre Amlan really gets this music. Um, let's, um, oh, I want to talk about, first of all, the Hyperion album cover it has a shell on it. And, um, it's, it's, it's black and it's got like a shell in the center. And, um, this is kind of the, the type of image you see, um, as an example of Fibonacci numbers. Usually they'll draw rectangles over it. And they'll talk about the proportions of the shell and how it just keeps growing according to Fibonacci numbers. And I'm kind of wondering if that cover has anything to do with Fibonacci numbers. Another unanswered question that we're just going to have to ask about um, hmm. somewhere. I don't know how to get that answer, but we'll have to find out who the artist was of that. Okay. Well, anyway, um, the first – this is – the album is called Sonatas and Rondo. Sonatas and Rondos, okay? Sonatas and Rondos. And uh, that's what they are, basically. We start out, this is a two-CD set, and we start out with the Sonata in A minor, H247, WQ57, number two. Let me explain what those are, okay? The first, the second number we'll talk about first. 
Um, Watquen number, named after Alfred Watquen, or Watquen, Watquen. Um, um, these were the numberings given by Alfred Watquen, the uh, CPE box scholar, in 1904, and they've lasted through the entire 20th century. Um, because um, music scholars have to make classical music even more confusing than it already is, um, we had another scholar um, do his... Um, um, you know, numbering, and the this is the H marking. This is for Helm, E. Eugene Helm's numbering. He did these in 1989, and yeah, these were due for an update. Um, you know, the Vatkven uh, numbers are very old, but uh, and especially given all the fantastic scholarship done during our lifetimes, it re there really has been like a renaissance of music scholarship um, since the. I guess the 1970s, but I started noticing it in the 1980s. But all these letters and numbers get confusing. I don't know how Especially to Especially when they work. Like, if you look, they don't correlate really well between the two systems. Uh, yeah, the, the two systems seem completely different. Yeah, you've got 57. So, yeah, one of them is 57 and the other one is... 265, uh, and then you've got another one that's uh, yeah. 62 and uh, well, 57 here is with 247, so, yeah. yeah. It's, hmm. it's really confusing. Yeah. I still Let's think not the Vatican ones are still the big, <laughs> the, uh, still the ones that people notice. Yeah. Uh, if you if you want to really confuse, get confused, look at Domenico Scarlatti sonatas. They have all kinds of crazy numbers on those now. Mm. Anyway, this first sonata in A minor, uh, Helm two forty seven, was written in seventeen seventy. Now. Mozart being the big composer, Mozart and Haydn being the two giants of the time, and Mozart really kind of being the most famous to us today. I like to think about how old Mozart was when these works were around. Because Mozart and C.P.E. Bach were friends, as were Mozart and Haydn. And um, I, th I think Mozart was really keen on uh, C.P.E.'s music. And apparently he was very popular and when he was alive, you know, at his time. Um, let's see. So this is... Um, this is from Volume 3 of C.P.E. Sonatas and Rondos for Connoisseurs and music lovers, okay? Okay, this is a piano work rather than a harpsichord work. Um, CPE Bach's career s spans between the end of the harpsichord and the beginning of the popularity of the uh, what we now call the forte piano. It's an early version of the piano. And this one would have been more for the piano. The, the big difference is that with the piano, um, the force with which you strike the keys affects the dynamics. On a harpsichord, it does not. It just plucks the string at the same um, volume every time. Okay, that's why you have two keyboards on a harpsichord, because one of them will be double string, so it'll be a little louder than the other one. Um, okay, and, there, and the work is written for colors that the piano can produce. Um, the piece also features sudden changes of character, which is possible on the piano, but not the harpsichord as well. And in the last movement of this sonata, within the course of just one phrase, okay, the music changes. All right, we hear the opening allegro of this piece, and just in the first four seconds, we know we're in good hands with Marc-Andre Amelan. Um, there's an opening figure and then an answer to it. You know, there's kind of like a two, you know, it's sort of a two bars or two kind of phrase sort of figure and then there's a two phrase answer which is played more quietly so that tells me right away that uh Amlan is alive to the humor and the sudden harmonic changes in this music um we think we're going to hear the theme repeated that's normally what would happen here but this is just never 
Nothing expected is ever going to happen in CP Box music, and that's why we love it so much because yeah. it's always surprising. You're like, whoa, what just happened? Um, uh, instead, the opening notes continue into cascading scales with a descending bass pattern and a downward bass line, too. The material changes so quickly, and uh, Amlan, he's a Consider he's a super virtuoso pianist, and uh, he's he's got a really quick mind too when it comes to catching these little details in music. Um, he catches it all by varying his touch. It's legato here, it's momentary staccato there, and then there are all other techniques um, uh, applied to this movement and really everything on this album when required. Uh, we do get a repeat of the exposition, which is helpful because we've just heard so many changes of character in this very short space. This whole movement is only about three or four minutes long. Um, um, so the, that helps. Um, then there's a, there's a development section, I guess, because it sounds even as complicated or more complicated than the, uh, the uh, exposition is harmonically. In the, in the you know now we have harmonic changes added to the uh, the changing sort of uh, tone of the instrument, and on the recapitulation, Amlan plays some games, delaying the notes in the opening theme, taking a long pause before the scalar figure. Uh, that may be in the score. I really don't know. I haven't seen the score of this. Uh, this is fantastic and imaginative playing of a fantastic and imaginative movement, and really a, a fantastic and imaginative imaginative sonata. Uh, the recap repeats, the recapitulation repeats, so you can hear all of this magnificent material again. So just in three minutes, I was exhilarated. I was like, oh, this is going to be great. And it's a two-CD set. Fantastic. All right. We get the second movement, Andante. This is more straightforward than the opening movement. There are some very pretty chord changes in this. Amelon is very subtle with his changes of note values and uh, added expression. There's some harmonic surprises in the middle section, but all in all, this movement winds up being satisfying with its cadences. Okay, no, uh, you know, uh, cadences are taken away from us in this. Not at the well until the end. Um, an open cadence unexpectedly leads to the last movement, so we don't get a resolve at the end of this movement. And then we're in the third allegro di molto movement. It kind of dances in triple figures, like da 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 da, you know that kind of thing. Uh, it sometimes hesitates. Some of the figures actually sound like Beethoven. I was put in mind of Beethoven quite a bit hmm. during this recording, and I really think Beethoven probably knew about these scores. Um, there's lots of varying material densely packed together. Hamelan catches all of it. Um, he's a lot smarter than I am, so I couldn't catch all of it <laughs> as a listener. It's hard to explain. It just goes by so fast. You know, it's it's sort of mm. like uh, I don't know if you ever listened to uh, if you ever heard like a Japanese haiku poem recited. There's some beautiful image, and then before you know it, you know the the poets the poem's over, and you've just it's just evaporated into the air. That uh, thought that you had. Well, this music mm. kind of does that you're like whoa what was that and then you're on to the next thing already um this is compelling this is a compelling fun performance that will keep you on your toes i often think of cpe's music as ideal for the smartphone age that we live in now as the ideas change so quickly that it mirrors the short attention spans of modern people but that's not <laughs> to say this is music from people with short attention spans but it kind of mirrors that whole jumping around sort of thing that I think our brains do today, our multitasking brains. Uh, there's a real quirkiness to this that suits our times well, too. It's kind of tough to follow all this, but part of that is just because 
but that's I well part of that's because of Mark Andre Amlan's like creativity here too, as well as CPE Box. But also this is because this is a CD because it's a recording. You can listen to it again and again and again, and that's what I've been doing since I've uh, purchased this uh, recording. It's just. You know, every time I hear it, I'm just like, it's it's not really sinking in, but I'm really enjoying it, and I'm just trying to kind of figure out what's happening. And uh, mm. I think it's it's it, it kind of gets into your subconscious mind. Your subconscious mind starts trying to figure it out too. By the way, one other thing before I forget to mention it: fantastic piano recorded piano sound on this recording. This is not always the case with Mark Andre Amlan recordings, but it, it certainly is here. Um, it's this is a really enjoyable recording to listen to now also when i say that you should really give this a listen or a sample unfortunately you can't um you'd have to buy it in order to hear the entire work but you can sample sections of it on hyperion's website um don't let me it, this isn't music you're going to like kick back to and relax to it really keeps you on your toes but that said, it's not difficult to listen to. It's all tonal. It has some jarring chords in it, but they all resolve into something more tonal. It is a classical era work, after all. Uh, don't be put off by any of my um, charges of quirkiness. They're meant to be positive, and uh, this is really fun music. It'll if you're if you're even, if you like to really concentrate and like be surprised. This would be a really excellent music to listen to. All right, I don't know how much detail I'm going to go through in all of these works. This is a pretty long album full of pleasures, but let's do a few of these, um, at least on disc one. Uh, the uh, fourth track is uh, a rondo in E major, Helm 265, Watt Quo 57, number one, in, written in 1781. That was the era Mozart was in Vienna, and he was really writing his piano concerti. This, is, this was the peak of Mozart's career. Okay, so this is uh, Bach was in Hamburg, I believe, at this time. Um, this rondo, remember, a rondo has a theme, and that we keep coming back to that theme after brief excursions away from it. Um, there are lots of sudden color changes, key changes, and modulations in this work. It's a one-movement work. Um, and the last two are slightly added to the returns of the theme. Um, it's it's sometimes hard to um, identify the Rondo theme when it returns. Um, he changes it quite a bit, although it has the same profile. Uh, he meaning CPE Bach. And the main Rondo theme is chimey and pretty, and it's pretty square. So I it but it doesn't stay square when it gets repeated. Um, it repeats louder with emphatic bass. The answering phrase leading to the cadence played more quietly. And here I just commented that Amlan. Marc-Andre Ablon has a lot of colors in his keyboard playing palette, his piano playing palette. Gradations of tone as well as note value. He wrings a lot of expression out of this and gets a lot of changing moods. Uh, Quicksilver is a word classical critics like to use, very appropriate here. The episodes sort of morph out of the theme so that you hardly know what's happening. So you're not, you know, before you know it, you're on you're on this other theme and you don't realize that you've gone there, you think the theme is continuing. Uh, the Rondo theme is heard pretty often, but it's always a little different. Now chimey, now in the bass, loud and soft, rephrased in different places. Now it's got like a Siciliano rhythm. Now it has triplet figuration. Then it has chords broken into lower and higher sections on each beat. It's really mind-boggling. Uh, this is a performance and piece that repays repeated listenings. Actually, the entire disc does. 
I'm wondering if I've ever heard this piece played by another pianist. I think this was a set of variations. If I didn't know this was called a rondo, I would think it was a set of variations. Um, CPE Bach blurs the theme and the other sections so much that you're never sure where you are. It would be mean to put this on a test and ask students to identify the form. They'd all <laughs> say it was a set of variations, as would I, I think. Um, but it is, in fact, a rondo. Uh, it ends suddenly and unexpectedly with a rushed cadence, which means it has like a proper ending, but it just kind of comes out of the air unexpectedly. One imagines the pianist abruptly standing up and rushing off the stage or out of the room. <laughs> you know, it's kind of that, has that kind of feeling. Oh, I'm late for something. All right. Tracks five to nine on disc one, Fantasia in C major. When I hear the word Fantasia or Fantasia, some people like to say, um, I, I think of Mo Mozart's dark works. And we will hear a very dark Fantasia uh, on disc two of this album. Um, this particular one from volume six of Bassanaz and Rondos in C major, um, Helm 291, Watt Crow 61, number six, is very pianistic with emphatic pointed rhythms and closely voiced chords. This is like a big rondo with two contrasting sections, okay? It's called the Fantasia, but it really, I think, functions as a rondo. Tracks 5, 7, and 9 are all the opening theme. They repeated, you know, as though it was a big rondo. Um, the first movement, the I, what I'm calling the main theme, has a quick is quick and overactive with harmonic surprises. It sounds Beethovenian to me, um, it reminds me of some of Beethoven's like uh, earlier piano sonatas. I think of the Tempest, oh, it was thirty-two, number two. I suspect. Okay, Beethoven knew his CPE as well as his Mozart. This movement ends suddenly. We go to an andante, slow chord-based theme, varied in various ways. We hear the Presto di Molto again, track seven, similar in rhythm and melody this time with some pauses built in. It's not the same, but similar enough to bring the rondo idea. And it also ends abruptly and unexpectedly. We move to a larghetto sostenuto, track eight. Repeating chords that a melody grows out of. Satisfying cadences. It has satisfying cadences. There's some contrasting material in the middle. It's pretty straightforward in form and content. And there are some startling sforzato chords, means these, on the off beat, there's suddenly this big accent. Um, another technique Beethoven would use often in his piano sonatas. And finally, track nine, Presto di Molto, very similar to the opening movement with some subtle differences in the harmony. There's a great false cadence towards the end, after which there are harp-like arpeggiated chords, and we get a solid final cadence at the end. Tracks 10 to 14 are Sonata in E minor, Helm 66, Wat Quen 62, number 12. I sometimes say Wat Quo, I don't know why. Wat Quen. Wat Quen. This is an early one from 1751, so this was written before Mozart was born. And it actually sounds, um, it was first published in one of the volumes of the musical All Sorts, uh, Musikalisches Allerlei, by the Berlin printer F.W. Bernstiel in the early 1750s. It's a suite in the more antiquated style of Bach's dad, Johann Sebastian. Um, this is in the Empfindsame Stil, which is which translates as the sensitive style. And uh, if you want to 
you know, impress your friends, you could say, kids today are too empfinsam. <laughs> they're, they're too sensitive. <laughs> okay. It reminds me of um, the, the Woody Allen movie, Annie Hall, where he's standing in line with Diane Keaton, Annie, waiting to get into a movie. And there's this um, university professor going off on this, <laughs> you know, pretty much mansplaining to his poor date about uh, <laughs> great directors. And uh, Woody Allen is commenting to Diane Keaton about how, you know, he really hates it when people do this. And she, after she defends him, she says, oh, he's probably something or other. There's a pause. And in that pause, you hear the guy say in a loud voice, oh, what is it? Um, Weltanschauung. <laughs> Could you possibly come up with a more pretentious word to the English speaking ear? <laughs> then Weltanschauung. <laughs> okay. Anyway, see that movie. It means worldview, by the way. His worldview. His Weltanschauung. Okay. Anyway, here the kids are. Empfinsam. This is in the Empfinsamer Stil. With its sighing or falling intervals and appoggiaturas and unpredictable harmonic and melodic style. So he's modernized J.S.'s works a lot. J.S. Johann Sebastian's works a lot. And made it his own. CPE, that is. This has um, Baroque dance uh, movements. Allemande um, resembles J.S. Bach's first French suite in D minor. And it really sounds like his dad all the way through. Um, the second half of the work has more of a CPE sound to it. So I guess it's like dad and son here. You know, he's kind of the, sec the second bit of it. He's put a few of his own quirky ideas in. It, just in the way the melodies are shaped. There's even a subtle and very enjoyable false cadence towards the end. Um, from the usually unsubtle CPE. Uh, Amlan reshapes some of the figuration on the repeat. Okay, Courant. This is another Baroque dance. It has a dramatic start with a mildly crashing chord at the beginning. It races along and has a feel that's half JS, half CPE. Again, Carl Philip Emanuel, CPE Bach, shows more of his own side in the repeat and the insistence on more loud dynamics in the way certain themes are sequenced. It may be that Amlan is taking this faster than normal to give it more of a CPE feel. Okay, I'm not really sure what's happening here as far as that goes. Third movement, Sarabande. Oh, the famous slow dance. The slow, sexy dance of the Baroque era that today wouldn't turn anyone on at all, but then it Can made people sweat. Can you twerk to it? What? Can you twerk to it? It's too slow to twerk oh, to. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Plus, when you're wearing a, like a whalebone corset, I think it's kind of hard to. Uh, it could be dangerous. You could get a could punctured lung or something. You yeah. could get a punctured lung if you tried to twerk in the Baroque era. Okay, the Saraband, not as spacious as a Johann Sebastian Bach Saraband. It's relatively active. Uh, dynamic changes are used for effect. It starts medium loud and decrescendos from there, it gets softer. It's not as elegant as great Sarabans can be. In fact, it's pretty assertive at times. I guess that's CPE, you know, asserting his personality again, uh, particularly in the crescendi, but it's an enjoyable movement nonetheless. Fourth movement is a menuet. Oh, the menuet. Up until Bach completely did away with them. Um, we heard these in, in every work, basically. Um, the opening of this menuet is very appealing. It has a lot of charm. There are some odd bass notes stuck in that kind of feel like uh, pegs holding up the lines of a circus tent. I kind of got that image um, inserted into the ground. Uh, 
And for the second half of the menuet, Amlan plays more emphatically and deliberately, resorting to staccato. This throws the middle trio into relief, uh, which is it's fairly legato at that point, and smooth. As is customary, the menuet repeats after the trio, with the second half very emphatic again. There's a second trio, however, a bit of a surprise, and uh, the menuet repeats again. The second half played loud, the loudest of any time it has appeared, and then suddenly quiets for the end. This is a really uh, good lesson in piano playing, how you can vary all of these repeating parts. It's also a good lesson in composition. Uh, keep the audience interested. Um, the fifth movement, jig, a jig, is a bit of a resemblance to handle in this particular one, especially in the melody. It's lively, it's played staccato, and it has fugato themes in the treble and bass. It kind of means notes that imitate each other like they're in a fugue, but it doesn't follow a fugue's rules. It's loose. Uh, lively and appealing. The next piece, track 15, is called Abschied von meinem Silbermannischen Klavier in einem Rondo. Oh, that's a mouthful. Yeah. Silbermannischen is the adjective for Silbermann in this case. This is Helm 272, Watkven. I keep saying Watkvo. I did that in an earlier episode too. Watkven 66 from 1781. Uh, this was, uh, in English, it means farewell to my clavier built by Silbermann. So it's a clavichord-inspired work. Clavichords were very, very quiet instruments, quieter than a harpsichord. You could walk into a room and you'd barely know someone was playing it unless you were up close. <laughs> um, they're really ideal for uh, Japan. We, I'm surprised they didn't catch on here because you, know, you can hear everything your neighbors are doing in, the, in, in these houses. The walls are pretty thin. Okay, a clavichord-inspired work. It features a type of vibrato. Well, here's the thing. The notes that um, written by, by the way, Mahan Esfahani, great harpsichord um, player himself, he explains that this work has a vibrato achieved by applying varying pressure on the key hmm. as the metal tangent remains in contact with the string. Uh, that doesn't happen on the piano. As soon as a piano uh, hammer hits the string, it falls away. So you can't, hmm. you know, sort of um, no after keep effect. doing that. Yeah, no after effect. So we don't hear that, I don't think. I mean, I didn't notice it if Hamlan managed to um, put that across. But um, uh, he plays this work appropriately, quietly. Um, the effect... Oh, never mind that. Uh, the effect, by the way, I just talked about is called a bebung. Okay. The work is appropriately... F- funereal because he's losing his uh, clavier for some reason. And there's some drama at the end as the music gets louder. It ends quietly and subtly. Tracks 16 to 25. There's so much music on this album and it's all good. All right. Arioso with nine variations in C major. Helm 259 Vatkven 118 number 10. Written 1777 or later. So this is like Mozart's uh just turned 21. A clavichord-inspired work, so it's going to be quiet again. The variations on this have lots of invention, and we're going to hear another very set of variations with a lot of inventions on another album later. Okay, first we have an ariozo, a gentle, quiet theme with a loudish response. In the second half, the responses become a bit more humorous in their unexpected styles. They're florid, they're minimal. Ah, oh, it's really inventive but then we get into the variations which are just going to show you that Bach's mind must have been just as full on was faucet of just ideas coming out all the time he seems to just never 
he's just never boring really in fact sometimes it seems like he has too many ideas because you start to kind of lose track of what's going on um the first variation is rather minimal with the staccato rhythm opening amlan varies his attack quite a bit in each section uh and the second part is started legato and then reverts to staccato again variation two features double note values in the right hand so it's a bit more florid there's more space to add things since the melody is is doubled here the usual unpredictability and profile from section to section is present and it sounds like an overactive highly inventive mind at work variation three is a bit more reflective in its melodies with chords uh, that changes in the repeat and the second section as the melody is accompanied only by bass notes. Again, nothing stays the same for long. Variation 4 it has a quiet, slow opening in the minor key. It sounds a little darker, spare statements with more florid responses. The invention is amazing, lots of ideas. Variation 5, very fast figuration, which Hamlan, of course being his virtuosic self, articulates extremely well. Variation 6 has kind of like a, I guess I called it a galumphing rhythm, with arpeggiated chords, then quiet cadences. There are all sorts of variations um, on how the material is presented, but the rhythmic profile remains constant. Variation 7 is back to the opening tempo, and it's hard to say what the variation here is. The melody is slightly busier with more ornaments, it certainly keeps you on your toes with its changing ideas, and there's a nice poetic moment at the end where the melody gives a brief solo statement. It's just kind of being rhetorical. Variation 8 is qu has a quiet question with a loud answer. Usually it's the opposite, so this is a little bit of a surprise. The melodic material is presented with minimal ornamentation. It ends without a cadence and goes directly to the next variation, which is Variation 9, a grand chordal statement of the question followed by a lighter melodic answer. This continues into the second half. There's a long pause before the final cadence. It's stretched out by a gentle melodic line. And then we hear the cadence and we're done. CD1 ends with two brief pieces, um, a march in G major, um, which was, I guess, attributed to Johann Sebastian Bach, but it's actually by CPE. It was written before 1725, so Bach would have been really young. It's written into Anna Magdalena Bach's notebook. By the way, Anna Magdalena Bach's notebook, I think we've mentioned this on a previous podcast. I've read somewhere that it served more as a family album rather than as a pedagogic tool for Anna Magdalena herself. This is Bach's second wife after Maria Barbara died, um, who, who was CPE's mom. Maria Barbara was CPE's mom. Um, but it seems like it, was, it acted as sort of a family album as well, You know, like where you'd have pictures of your family, they had, like, musical pieces by their family. Um, there's a naivete to this piece, um, but it can't mask an independent artistic character. It's cute with a lot of drumming repeated notes, catchy melody, and it sounds fun to play. Track 27. Oh, is this podcast over yet? Solfeggio in C minor. <laughs> Helm 220, Vatquen 117, number 2 from 1766. Mozart was 10 years old at that time. This has got some fleet figuration. It races through its one-minute duration with a dramatic pause at one point. Very attractive. All right, so we're finished with disc one. And uh, my whole... I want to say I enjoyed this album so much, but once I started 
listening to it for the podcast, it started making me really tired. I was kind of like, oh, man, this is so much. I can't even – how am I going to articulate all of this? Mm. You know, it's it's really an album that I'd rather just listen to and, like, puzzle over in my own way rather than have to put across because it's very complicated and doesn't really suit words well. Let's go on to CD2. Starts with a rondo in C minor. Helm 283, Vatkven. I'm getting better at pronounce, pronouncing this. Uh, 59, number 4, from 1784. So Mozart's Vienna years. The rondo theme starts with a nice upward motion that gets interrupted by a pause and some quirky harmony, which then finds its way back to resolution. There are all sorts of odd changes of character within the theme. The first departure is pretty quiet and predictable until its second part. Each thematic return of the rondo theme is played differently, but they are recognizable in this case. The second departure is also fairly quiet, except for the sudden moments when it isn't. (laughs) The return here features some pauses and surprising harmonic twists. There's a quiet departure after that, and the return has more pauses and musical hiccups. Amlan is great at putting this all across, microscopically attentive to the ever-changing material. Uh, the cadence at the end doesn't finish, so it's sort of open-ended sounding. I think if you played this for people, they'd, they'd ask you, that's it? <laughs> okay, Sonata in F minor. Helm 173, Vatkren, 57 number 6, 1763. Three movement Sonata, Allegro Asai first. Um, this is kind of has a humpy rising rhythm at the beginning that cleverly goes into a trotting second theme. I get a horse riding quality out of this rhythm or a hobby horse riding rhythm like back and forth like a child on a hobby horse. The rising melodic material is characteristic of the movement. The development section has some very clever harmonic changes and surprises. Uh, this is a fairly brief movement but chock full of action. Boy, the way he that CPE packs... Um, episodes into like this tiny space is unbelievable. I wish this guy could pack my travel bags. I bet he'd fit everything in. <laughs> he'd, he'd be great in a Japanese house <laughs> getting all your furniture in there, you know? <laughs> Judging by his music. Um, second movement, Andante. The theme is accompanied by dotted rhythms in the bass that make this gentle song-like movement seem a bit quirky and less elegant in a good fun way. I imagine this must be fun for the pianist to play, discovering as he would all these quirks along the way. Uh, It sounds like a challenge to interpret, too. Uh, Again, there's no closing cadence. There's a brief pause. Then we go to the third movement, Andantino Grazioso. This is also song-like in a meditative way, with quick dotted rhythms, dun-da-dun-da-dun, appearing occasionally in the bass. There's a lot of invention throughout the five-minute movement, a cadence at the end, but not a very solid one. The piece just ends on this cadence. We don't really get a sense of, like, relief at the end. The next one, track five, is something new again. Lali Rupalich, it's called. Helm 95, Vatkven 117, number 27, uh, composed in 1755. Um, This is a character piece, and these were really popular in the Baroque era, so uh, he'd probably know about it from his... His dad, CPE, would know about it from Johann Sebastian and from especially the French um, uh, Baroque composers because they wrote a lot of these. They're homages to patrons or friends and were characteristic of the high Baroque. This type of piece has strong associations with the stock characterizations of early modern theater. 
and the 17th century fashion of literary tributes among intellectual equals. They're not dancey, so they focus more on the rhetorical content of a piece or a lot of space in order to suggest a mere impression, even a lighthearted one, of the figure that they're sort of drawing musically. This particular one, the Lali Rupalich, is fairly straightforward. Um, it has a 1-5 repeating bass pattern, so tonic dominant, over which the lively melody is played. There's an intriguing pause, after which the same pattern continues over different chords. The material occasionally threatens to change to something else, then abruptly changes its mind and goes back to where it was. Think about that, what that would say about the person that it's uh, drawing. Okay, it's, It looks like it's going to change, then it goes back to its old habits. Another pause and the same material again. I got the impression of um, eating chocolates, trying to leave them, and then saying, oh, I'll just have some more. And you're just eating the whole <laughs> box, basically. <laughs> and that's just the image that came to mind when I was kind of listening to this. And this pattern repeating itself throughout the piece. It's fun. Amlan characterizes it perfectly. No cadence at the end. Giving the impression that this person is just continuing in whatever has been set up. Track 6 to 8 is a sonata. This is a very short sonata. It's only 5 minutes. It's a 3 movement work that's 5 minutes long in total. And uh, the first movement, Allegro di Molto, has odd harmonies and abrupt rhythmic stops and shifts. Um, and this is a highly arpeggiated labyrinth of a movement. There are so many quick changes that you want to hear the movement again to make sure they were there as they go by so fast. Uh, no cadence at the end. The movement just ends on a pause and goes into the next Allegretto, second movement. This is fairly slow despite its marking. More straightforward than the opening movement, despite some bursts of movement towards cadences. Otherwise, the music is allowed to wind out. There is a cadence at the end of this, and then we go to the presto di molto. By the way, a, a cadence for the for people who don't listen to classical music much is like a period at the end of a sentence. It just sounds like the phrase is finished. Okay. Um, the third movement, presto di molto. Quirky sounding skipping melody at the beginning played relatively staccato. The material winds out until it's abruptly and surprisingly lands on a solid closing cadence. This this piece is a, is a, is a real wow, especially given its really short duration. It, it, there's enough material in it for a, for a 20 or 30 minute work if you stretch it all out. Okay, we get another sonata next. Um, a flat major, Helm 31, Fatkven 49, number 2 from 1742, 1743. This is an earlier work. Uh, this is a complicated uh, movement, a little surprising given the year. It starts softly like a waltz, and it sounds kind of Mozartian, but Mozart wasn't even born at this time, so um, you make what you will of that. Okay, there are some shorter phrases followed by longer, by longer phrases to balance them, so there's a lopsidedness to the thematic material. Again, CPE finding his style. The bridge to the second subject is suddenly very loud, and any settling on a cadence is disguised by the start of the surprising second theme, played softly. We then get the cadence, played suddenly loud. Repeat of the exposition, accented a bit differently this time. We can hear the cadence before the soft second theme. It's very brief. I think I just didn't notice it the first time. The development doesn't sound entirely developed by the time it returns to the main themes in the recapitulation, but apparently it is fully developed as the rest of the movement sounds very satisfying. 
There's a coda at the end to balance things out via some odd modulations. This whole movement is sort of like a, a magic trick. It all balances out, even though it sounds completely unbalanced, you know, harmonically. Second movement, adagio. Amiable melody with a surprising pause occurring pretty quickly before it's completed. Lots of, there are lots of quick mood changes and bursts of volume that quickly die away for the quieter material to proceed. The surprise pauses and harmonies occur throughout the movement, constantly reminding you of who composed this music. This is something we need to say about C.P.E. Bach. He really is his own man. I mean, he's, he's unique as a composer. You really can't mistake his music for anyone else's. Mm -mm. Yeah, Amlan makes sure that you hear all of this, um, these details too. All the pauses uh, raised a smile for me. Um, Amlan makes them just long enough for you to wonder what's going to happen next. You're in that little space. You're just like, oh, what's going to happen next? And then it happens. The third movement, Allegro, a movement with a Baroque dance rhythm, but there's nothing Baroque about how it proceeds. There's some fancy fingerwork in the frequent quick trills placed in the melody. There's some playing around with the melodic textures in the second half, uh, with sudden shifts in rhythm and new figures introduced, most noteworthy the climbing melodic figure that leads back to the familiar material. Track 12, Rondo in B-flat major. Helm, 267, Vatkven, 58, number 5, from 1779. The rondo theme has a brief sort of horn signal type quality, like some, somebody's approaching and they're playing a horn. Uh, first departure is hesitant with pauses, and we find ourselves suddenly back in the rondo theme. The changes of material are so quick that it's hard to tell where you are in the rondo. This is pretty typical by now we, we we figured out but of course the theme comes back and we feel secure again every once in a while most rondos are like departures and returns but the departures in this one are like getting lost in the woods and uh <laughs> luckily finding your way back uh he uses the rondo theme sort of like a tutti in a concerto grosso so it can't you hear only part of it sometimes you don't hear the entire thing repeated um the piece is a bit wacky and it's hard to follow kind of if you're trying to you know, sort of lay down a thread to figure out where you are in the work. It's fun and full of surprises. It sounds hard to keep together as a player, um, and I'm, I'm of course, co I'm confident in Amlan's hands. There's so many odd details that I can't pa possibly tell you about them all. Give this particular movement a listen. Track 12 on CD2. Tracks 13 to 15, Sonata in E minor. Helm, 281. Vatkven, 59, number one. Um, from 1784. Oh, by the way, by now, you might be saying, when is this disc going to end? But trust me, you won't say that if you're listening to it, because it's really, really great. Um, there's a lot of music on this, and there's a lot of material in that music. It could really wipe you out. Okay, anyway, the Sonata in E minor, tracks 13 to 15. Uh, presto, thumping bass over the idea-laden theme. There are lots of quick changes of texture, and you get the idea that Bach can't stop the ideas from coming. This makes me think um, this composer was hard done by by history, because he really does, he really is incredibly inventive. Uh, he was successful in his own lifetime, though. This movement is full, so full of sudden changes of style and quality that I can't mention them all. And I can hardly follow them all myself. I have to listen to this again and again and again, and I recommend you do too. The middle movement, Adagio, there's no pause into this. It just, uh, the music just slows down and plays into this. The theme is lightly played by Amlan, but it sounds laden with some kind of heaviness, and that's because of the harmonic colors that CPE has um, 
composed into this. There's something odd and funereal about this material, especially after the highly contrasting quirkiness of the first movement. It's over before you know it, with an ending cadence. And then we're on to the third movement and final movement, Andantino. There's a pause before this movement. It sounds lively enough at the beginning, and it ends quietly and unexpectedly. Um, there's no cadence, just an ending note serving in the place of a cadence. Well, I guess it's a cadence, but it doesn't, like, you don't hear the full chord. You just hear one note. Okay, we get into some more character pieces. Track 16, La Complaisante. I really enjoyed this one. Um, 1756. Um, this distills a momentary glimpse of human behavior within a short rondo in a disarming pastoral style, is what Mahanis Fahani says in his booklet notes. Um, I found this to be very pretty and feminine in its uh, comeliness. It's very pretty. It gave me the sense of a woman gently brushing her hair, thinking about whatever thoughts she's having. Um, and it goes on to other pursuits from there. So it's, it just kind of sounds like an ordinary sort of activity that this gentle person is you know, doing. And it's a woman, too, because it has it's... it's in it's feminine it wouldn't have an e at the end if it was a man i guess track 17 rondo in e major helm 274 vatkven 58 number three from 1781 this starts with a theme that feels like it unspools it kind of feels like it's being pulled off of a spool um the unspooled notes get echoed in the material that comes afterwards as we get away from the theme, some dark harmonic areas are touched on before we suddenly come back to the theme. The second departure stays somewhere more comfortable, and we return easily to the theme. There's a quick treble note, played staccato, and it ends the work in a cute way. All right, now, tracks 18 to 27. Freie Fantasie fürs Klavier in F-sharp minor. Uh, Helm 300, Vatkven 67 from 1787. Okay, this is for the clavier, and this is a dark, disturbing fantasy, given the harmony that was permissible at the time. So it's not, it doesn't get like a, it's not as like dark as a romantic work, but we've seen that uh, Mozart can go into some pretty dark places, and this one really was forbidding. The opening adagio uh, has forbidding quiet chords, played ostinato, and the fantasy often means something dark in this period. Uh, but the title leaves room for the composer to explore the darker regions of tonality and harmonic structure. This entire adagio goes into some seriously forbidden places. Forbidding places, sorry. Second movement, Allegretto, has a cascading figure at the beginning. It sounds completely different in tone than the adagio. It's teasing, but some of the pauses indicate that the joke isn't working. <laughs> Meaning, like, the, I guess the person is trying to, like, joke himself out of his bad situation and uh but the darkness won't go away the third movement Largo we get back to something heavy and quiet there's quite a bit of variety in this section and the fourth movement Adagio the ostinato chord pattern returns this time with changing chords there's a bass note followed by three chords the volume suddenly increases or decreases with each section and there's some subtle crescendos and decrescendos Fifth movement, Largo, no cadence, going into this tentative, creeping, frightened-sounding movement. The sudden outbursts of turn-like material, like a turn, da -da -da -da, you know, uh, give me the sense of sudden fright. By the end, there are lighter, arpeggiated figures that dispel the darkness momentarily. The adagio that comes next, movement six, resumes the bass note 
three chord ostinato pattern. So there's a dun 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 kind of bass note and then three chords. But this breaks up and we hear rhetorical downward melodic figures like a point is being made. Um, this just ends with the chords continuing until the seventh movement Allegretto starts. And this has cascading arpeggio figures that overwhelm the chord pattern in the previous section. They stop and we hear some rolled chords at the end. Uh, movement eight, Adagio, rhetorical opening with rhetorical melody and wandering bass comments. Then we get the ninth movement, Allegretto. This is an, there's an almost 20th century figure here, but at the beginning, but it, it's all tonal. It's kind of angular sounding. You wouldn't expect something like this in this era. Um, a very angular comment at the opening, followed by cascading arpeggiated material. This movement is inconclusive and leads to the final 10th movement, Largo, a rhetorical melody again, which leads to a dark, strong cadence in the minor. We are left in that awful place. Now, if if you remember when we did the uh, Vikingur Olafsson Mozart album, this is where Olafsson left us in the woods without a guide. <laughs> it ended darkly. Um Marc-Andre Amlan isn't going to do that. He gives us two more character pieces. He wants us to feel good. Thank you, Marc-Andre. Um, so we get two more lighter character pieces. Track 28, Lerman. Um, is, um, it's got charm, pretty straightforward, a welcome relief after the fantasia. And the final work on this disc is La Prinzette. Another character piece. It has a light, dancey theme. Now, I mentioned that these pieces usually don't have much of a dance rhythm to them. This one does. I guess the person was a dancey kind of person that it's portraying um, with a few jokey accents and prolonged figuration thrown in. This one also sounds like a fun piece to play. And I imagine the person it's named after was a fun person. Well, we've gotten to the end of this magnificent two disc set. And if I've made it sound boring, I'm really sorry. It's better when you hear it than it is when you talk about it. There was so many details and I really didn't know how to go into them all. But I guess if you're listening to the disc and you listen to what I say, you'll notice some of the details that I've given. What kept me listening to this again and again was trying to hear how each work fit together. That's really the real challenge of listening to CPE CPE box music. Um, it's like putting a puzzle together you know, for the pianist, obviously, but also for the listener. You're trying to follow the pianist, what the pianist is doing. Um, the fourth and fifth time you listen to these, you're going to be still be hearing new things that you missed the first, second, and third time you heard it. It uh, Amlan has the measure of this music as well as the sense of how to bring out its quirkiness and humor, and I loved every minute of his playing. Having to talk about this was hard. I'd just rather keep listening and have my unconscious mind work it out over time. I think if I were to review this album again a year from now, I'd have something more more uh, competent to say about it. But I just want to say, it's really fantastic. If you want a, a little intellectual challenge and a lot of fun, please listen. Yeah, there's too much here to... Um digest oh. in one listening session you know i've i've had it on for a couple of weeks now yeah me but, too um i'll listen to it for a while and my attention drifts off and i realize i've missed so much so i've been going back and just listening to one or two works at a time so that i can appreciate what's going on and there's a lot of variety in the material uh from period and styles as you highlighted um you know for me I really yeah, like shout C out to Marc Andre 
Amlan's programming for that because yeah. he didn't have to program it this way. It was really varied. Yeah, there's some pieces here that I've heard recordings of before, but there's a lot of new things to me that I've never heard before. Uh, so I think Mark Andre really, you know, he gets CPI, CPE box unique personality and the quirkiness we talk about. And rather than uh, rather than playing through through those little figures that are signatures of his or overemphasizing them, he gets them just right to me. And uh, they're sort of, you know, little indicators. And a couple of things I noticed to me, CPE Buck, he must have, you know, growing up listening to his father's music. I, I imagine this is just my complete, you know, supposition on it is that his mind was a repository of all Baroque ideas and phrases and things that could be done. And, yeah. you know, as much as I love Baroque music, one of the things about it, it in some cases, in rather you know, of the lesser creative composers. It could be very formulaic. Uh, you could just stitch together pieces that followed conventions and mm -hmm. didn't break any new ground. And they would be beautiful and, you know, as Baroque music is, is very logical. Uh, yeah, that's basically how the Galant style went. Right. It was kind of like very superficial. But what I noticed from him is that he seems to have already digested all of those uh, previous forms and he can play with them, you know, as a almost like a cat plays with a mouse and hmm. sort of just fit these smaller structures together and create a bigger superstructure of surprising things that he's obviously amusing himself with and if you give him his attention your attention rather you'll be really surprised and amused at how he sets these you know sort of uh suspense things and uh you know we talk about false cadences and things right. he, he continually plays with your expectations like a suspense movie does yeah. and uh it keeps you on your toes because he has at his command all of these devices uh that went before and he's not going to use them in the same way probably because you know I just imagine that uh, having absorbed his father's works and everything of that time period, he's uh, able to take a new level of uh, creativity in, in the direction of the music. And that's what I really like about listening to him. Uh, and so I liked that here. And what I liked about uh, this recording particularly, well, we have pieces from different periods that would be played on different types of keyboard instruments. What I felt that Amlan really did well is he never made me feel like I oh I, I'd really want to hear this on a harpsichord which is what I think <laughs> sometimes when I hear earlier pieces played on piano I say oh this sounds great but I wonder what it would sound like on a harpsichord I never felt that at all even on the earlier pieces I thought his touch is so subtle and magnificent that he strikes that nice uh, balance between uh, getting the sort of subtleties and lightness of a harpsichord but enough color and uh, dynamic contrast in the piano but never too much that it sort of goes through all of this different material and it all sounds like it was just meant to be played the way he's doing it yeah so I thought it's a supreme recording all sorts of new things to discover you're just going to have to do it over a longer period or you know in smaller sections because uh, it, it deserves that much attention. It's such a good recording. Yeah, I can't imagine any other pianist squeezing more juice out of each of these individual pieces. No, not without squeezing too much does, and yeah. then losing the continuity, which right. I thought, you know, over all this material, it really just sticks together. 
and it, it holds you within a certain parameter of style that he's, you know, worked out for the sort of uh, macro idea of this project. So yeah, really enjoyable, yeah. probably, you know, definitely the biggest collection of CP box music I've heard in one place. Yeah, I imagine myself listening to this years and years from now, again and again, still trying to like um, solve its mysteries and things mm. like that. One thing you said, by the way, about CBE Bach, like having been like you know his father's son and hearing all that music, it wasn't just his father. He the whole family was musical. So oh, he yeah. had musical yeah. brothers who were also pretty famous right. during their lives, including his older brother Wilhelm Friedemann. Right. And the whole family. And then he knew Mozart and he yeah. knew like Haydn, you know, so he, he had just great music all around him. It must have been some life, really. Yeah. You know? Not to, and also he took over from Telemann. He so he knew Telemann yeah. as well. Like being in a home, probably watching his father work out sort of, you know, things. Uh it sort of must have just become part of him to see that process. And then to me he took he took you know, I don't think you you can ever say anyone is you know greater than Bach in you know just the lines and the counterpoint and the beauty of uh, construction. But I really think CPE Bach has a has a unique wit in uh, stacking things together and mm. then turning them around uh, within a, one composition. Uh, that amuses me like not really many other composers do from any time period. Uh, he just yeah. has that that sort of um, fun of the process that comes through to you when you listen to it. You know, in a way, you could say he's like a romantic composer because he's absolutely unique. Yeah. yeah, 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 definitely. Okay, so we're like one hour into this podcast already, and we've only talked about one album. It's a very long album, but uh, it doesn't seem that way. Incidentally, if you listen to the CPE Bach, um, this album, um, I first of all, I I highly recommend that you do that. Um, it's it's I think it's this album was released by the way in 2022. It's the first um, uh, album that we're talking about that was released in 2022 on this podcast, and uh, it's also the first great classical album of the year cert certainly um, I don't recommend that you listen to it all the way through it's because there's so much variety I don't think it'll make your head explode um, a few pieces at a time uh, would be best that's how I listen to mm. it I absolutely I wasn't gonna certainly wasn't gonna make those notes and you know you, you'll kind of feel like uh, if you listen to it straight through you'll feel like you do now after hearing me talk about it all without <laughs> stopping <laughs> you know alright let's move on we 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 might wind up, you know, run out of podcasting time. Yeah. Okay. Sheku Sheku and Isata Kane Mason's album Muse on the Deca label. Okay. Now we've talked about Isata Kane Mason's album um, from last year, um, where she does um, sort of music by black composers and jazz related composers like Gershwin, and in this case, she's with her brother Sheku, the uh, cellist. Um, and they're playing cello sonatas. Um, the two major works here are Samuel Barber's Sonata for Cello and Piano in C minor and Sergei Rachmaninoff's Sonata for Cello and Piano in G minor, Opus 19. And then there are a lot of um, songs by both composers that are set for the cello and piano. Let's talk about this. Um, both cello sonatas on this recording were chosen for their emotional intensity and for the fact that the siblings like playing them in concerts. Um, needless to say, when you have two brothers or a brother and sister, 
um, family members playing together like this. They've probably been playing together since they were little children, since they first learned the instrument. So you're always going to get a lot of um, that sort of um, understanding of what the other person is going to do, a sort of telepathic ability. Okay, the first work, this is a work I had never heard before. This is the first time I heard the Samuel Barber Sonata for Cello and Piano in C minor, Opus 6. Um, Barber wrote this when he was 21 years old and a student at the Curtis Institute of Music, which is in Philadelphia. Okay, the booklet note says New York. It's not in New York. It's in Philadelphia, in case you want to read the booklet note. Famous school. All right, we have three movements. Allegro Manon Troppo is first. This fades in. It's kind of a nice effect. It doesn't fade in because the engineer faded it in. Uh, they do a fade-in effect. It's really nice. Um, now, this is really the first time I'm hearing Sheku Kanemason play, and he has this big, warm sound. Really? I thought so. <laughs> you okay. don't think? I'll save my comments to the end. Okay. Uh, this movement <laughs> jumps around quite a bit. The sound of these two players together is pretty interesting because Sheku's tone is wide while Isata's is thinner, and she articulates the material she plays with precision and clarity. Uh, the two sounds are rather different, and it's kind of odd hearing them together. You would think they'd be similar, but no. Um, they can Let's see. Isata can get very quiet, as can he, and this recording and performance has some extreme dynamics. There are a lot of sudden changes of dynamic in this movement. All right, I'll, I'll uh, qualify that. He, I think he has this big, warm sound compared to Isata Kahneman's sound, which is a lot kind of thinner sounding. So maybe it's just the contrast that's giving me that feeling. Yeah, I thought okay. it was completely reversed in the Rachmaninoff at the end, uh, it's one of the weird things about this recording uh, that I noticed, huh. but I'll save that till then. All right, let me see what I said for that one. I don't remember. But okay, we'll see. Okay, second move in Adagio um, to Presto, a very slow, moody opening with a long, drawn-out, luscious-sounding tones from the cello. After the opening, the music becomes highly caffeinated, skittering in the piano chords and resulting in a perpetual mobile line traded back and forth between cello and piano before it suddenly dies out. Uh, the slow adagio material repeats and ends beautifully on a low note. I rather like his um, effects. The third movement, Allegro Appassionato, has a big piano chord at the beginning. And Isata Kanemason, I said thin. I think a good word for her tone is crystalline. It sounds, there's something kind of hard and rock-like to it. It's unique in that way. I got to confess, I'm not a big fan but that shouldn't put you off. If you like that that sound, you know, go for it, okay? Um, it's not as warm and embracing to the ear as Sheku's tone is. I found him to be a lot warmer than her. Um, this movement has some tricky rhythmic changes in it, some of them placed close together. And this is a pretty impressive duo playing, given the difficulties. Uh, great sound on the cello, pizzicato on the end. Um, one of the things about this piece is the sudden you know, quietness and loudness and how they, just the fact that they're so in tune with each other, the, these effects come across like really strongly. I was impressed by that. Next come the four songs by Samuel Barber that are arranged for the uh, cello and piano. Uh, the first one is There's Nailark. Um, these were written when Barber was in his late teens, as were the next two. This has a fairly simple accompaniment to the gorgeous melody. It's an ideal work for the cello. Fifth track, A Slumber Song of the Madonna. Uh, Sheku draws a lot of warmth from these beautifully rendered melodies, and the piano accompanies with repeating chord patterns. Uh, 
Isata doesn't have much to do in this one, I don't think. Uh, the sixth movement, um, With Rue My Heart is Laden, a familiar song to me. These all sound nice on the cello, and this song is very brief at a minute and ten seconds. And then a very famous song, Sure on the Shining Night, uh, from Opus 13, four songs, written when he was in his 20s, just after the Adagio for Strings. This is a famous song with some nice arpeggiated chords on the piano, and the two set a good mood for the song here. Very sensitive playing from Isata Kanemason in this particular piece. Okay, now we're on to uh, Sergei Rachmaninoff. Before his cello and piano sonata, we hear um, his cello sonata. We hear three songs. The first is called It Cannot Be. The booklet does not give the, the Russian names of the songs, so... It's number seven from 14 songs, opus 34, if you want to look it up. Um, this requires more dramatic piano playing than the Barber songs. Um, the melodies are warm after the opening. It ends quietly. I don't really have much to say about the uh, the songs, really. They're kind of, they're good. Yeah. You know, they're, they're well played, but they're kind of light. You know, they sort of, I think I'd rather hear them with a vocal. Um, track nine, How Fair This Spot. Um, this is heart, a heartfelt melody in the cello. Sheko puts it across warmly. I use that word warm a lot for him. Track 10, The Muse, number one from 14 songs, opus 34. Starts with a very quiet spare figure in the piano. The piano plays solo for a while, presenting some of the chords when the cello melody starts up solo. And the piano comes in to outline the harmony. Again, another gorgeous expressive melody. Then we get to the Rachmaninoff. Cello Sonata in G minor, opus 19. This starts lento, tentatively, with the cello playing pairs of notes over brief figures in the piano. The slow section drifts off, and the faster allegro moderato begins with a searching melody that reaches a cadence at its end. <coughs> Excuse me. It continues, accompanied by the suggestion of a Russian dance rhythm in the piano. The piano plays the second theme solo. The cello comes in later. There's a development section that continues in a highly melodic mode. This is really interesting because you don't really hear the harmonic changes so much. You almost don't notice because um, of the uh, the melodic material. Rachmaninoff is very melodic. Mm. I liked uh, Sheku's um, tone on his pizzicati at about the eight-minute mark. And Isata's playing of the second theme, Isata's playing of the second theme, and the recap is gorgeous and heartfelt. I liked her here. There's a coda at the end of this 12-minute and very involved and involving movement. It ends in a dance-like mode. Second movement, Allegro Scherzando, has a quasi-aggressive bouncing rhythm to it. The years these two have spent playing together is audible in this movement. They telegraph each other's... They, well, telegraph is the wrong mood. They ha they're almost like telegraphic in anticipating each other's sudden changes of tone, tempo, or the rhythmic pattern. The bouncing rhythm returns at the end, and the movement ends that way. Third uh, movement, uh, Andante. Uh, the opening for this uh, movement could have come out of the 19th century. It's very romantic. Uh, and it's played by solo piano. The cello comes in and plays the theme. And this is a full-on rom melting romantic melody of the Rachmaninoff type. The last movement, Allegro Mosso. The opening melody is active with busy piano accompaniment. The second theme is slower and rather longing in the cello piano accompaniment is very quiet. The development section reverts to a quietly aggressive rhythm in the bass line of the piano with occasional build-ups 
to an outburst of passion, and there's a bit where the playing quietens to an intimate whisper in the piano, bass, and melody. These two are able to get like really quiet sounds. It's pretty amazing. The, the cello quietly makes brief comments on that. The cello plays a winding figure that gradually crescendos and ends that mood and gets up to the recapitulation. Um, in this particular movement, by the way, in Sheku's playing, you can hear a lot of um, bow noise. I, I don't know if that's like the uh, recording or that's too close or that he's just kind of really pushing hard. But he doesn't have like... It's not as warm as in other places. There's a reminiscing coda at the end of the recap. It's soft and slow. The material reaches a cadence, then builds up a crescendo to a heated up ending. Um, uh, these okay, so that's the end of that uh, movement. It's it's pretty um, yeah, it's exciting playing, but I think there's a lot of extraneous noise being made, especially by the cellist in this particular movement. Um, they're very di the two of these they're brother and sister but they're very different musical personalities so it's kind of weird hearing them together I kind of wonder how they, um, they they've been playing forever together so I guess they um, you know have a good feeling for each other but their tones are completely different um, they're very attentive to each other that's of course their strength and play well together I don't know I, I thought this was good I wasn't like you know absolutely thrilled by it but um uh, Interesting, let's say. I like the musicianship and the interplay. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the sort of uh, cohesiveness they have, you know, uh, from playing together and as siblings, uh, that you can recognize the extra sense that they have very well. I was just kind of disappointed overall with the cello tone and particularly on the Rachmaninoff. Okay. Uh, I wanted more volume in comparison with the piano just because I know this, I, I liked the barber more. I thought the cello was more present, but hmm. I felt the cello was way too low compared to the uh, piano. I, I have a lot of recordings of this Rachmaninoff cello piece and, you know, like Lynn Harrell and other things. Right. I was wondering... Some of the real greats, yeah. Yeah, well, I just... I, I don't want to compare him to Lynn Harrell, but I wanted he's, he's more... He's too young for that now, though. <laughs> um, the, I wanted more volume and also thickness. The cello sounded thin to me, and I wanted that kind of I, w warm fuzz coming out of it. I thought that was truer in the Rachmaninoff... Yeah, no, I think that may have been the recording situation. Could I be. Really I know. mean, it could be mm. the placement was changed or any. I mean, it's on Decca, so you would expect, you know, that. So it's it wasn't anything in playing, so much as the uh, balance and uh, delivery of the sound to me. You know, mm. um, I, I just, you know, I wanted to turn the piano down and turn the cello up for most. Of the, oh, I see. Um, yeah, you, you don't have to saying? balance much. Yeah. I think that's true in the Rachmaninoff. The the piano especially tends to get loud in Rachmaninoff yeah. works in general. Yeah. Unless it's a piano concerto, then the orchestra's playing loud and you can't hear the piano. Yeah, so I wanted more of a burly kind of expanding cello tone and it was just right. getting sucked out of the recording for me. Um, All right. You know, nothing technically to fault with the, any any of the other emotion or something. Just uh, that sort yeah, of... Yeah, nice uh, to hear these two balance, yeah. together. They come from a musical family. They apparently mm. have five brothers and sisters on mm. top of them and they all play wow great they could they could be the new uh, Chung family you know, <laughs> remember Kyunghwa and Myunghwa yeah. from Korea alright we'll have to see alright our third classical 
album of tonight is a real find for me. I was really knocked out by this. America Scapes, played by the Basque National Orchestra. <laughs> yeah, conducted places. By, <laughs> I know, and conducted yeah. by the, well, he's American, but he's Mexican-American, Robert Trevino. Now, he spells his name without the, the tilde over the N, so you would say Trevino, but yeah. on Wikipedia, it's written with the tilde, so it would be Trevino. Oh, okay. So I guess you could say it both ways, kind of like Amlan Hamelin. Right. Um, so this, this is the Unpronounceable Names podcast, or the, <laughs> the two... We do get a lot of them that are hard to pronounce. Well, they're hard to pronounce, and then there is like two different pronunciations Someone that you could possibly read. use. Yeah. They're both right. Oh, man. Okay. This is on the Undine label, the Finnish Undine label. Okay, uh, Trevino. I guess I'm going to call him... What well, says Trevino on the album? I'm going to go for Trevino, even though there's often a tilde in the, on the end. He grew up in Fort Worth, Texas. Yeehaw. Uh, especially in North Richland Hills. He's Mexican-American, and his name is... Okay, I said the tilde here. Um, okay. So he's over in uh, the Basque country uh, recording these albums in, I think... Uh, another country entirely so they didn't even do this in the border at the border of Spain and France okay so these are all uh, American composers and they're all fairly unfamiliar works <laughs> yeah um, very which was me. yeah so it was a real surprise I had I may or may not have heard the Henry Cowell work before but uh, it was like hearing it for the first time anyway I didn't recognize it because I've heard a bit of his music before um, Henry, okay, well, let's, let's, let's get into this. Okay, the first composer is Charles Martin Loeffler, um, a work called um, La Mort de Tinta Gilles. That doesn't La sound Mort very American. de Tinta Gilles. It's um, f- a French title, and it's um, a, a tone poem um, after the drama by Maurice Metterlink. Metterlink is, of course, the... Um, where the uh, story Peleus and Melisande comes from, which is Debussy's great opera. Um, he was a symbolist um, playwright who's Belgian, and he was very popular during his lifetime. He inspired the Impressionists a lot. Um, this particular... Uh, first of all, um, there's a viola d'amore in this piece played by Delphine Dupuy. We have to give her a... because she has a big part in this. Leffler was born in Berlin, so he's not even he's not American, and he settled in the U.S. by 1882 at the age of 21, when he joined the almost brand new Boston Symphony Orchestra as a violinist and won his American citizenship in 1887. He, however, considered himself Alsatian. Alsace <laughs> is in France, next to Germany and Switzerland, and he did live there for a time. He also lived in the Ukraine, Hungary. And Switzerland. Okay, he got around. A, wow. He got around. Um, and his, his music is really nice. This, this play is, is a great tone piece. poem. This is beautiful. Yeah, it's a great piece. It's very long. It's beautiful. It's got some little kind of tonal surprises in it, mm-hmm. especially with the viola d'amore, which is kind of an odd instrument to use in this. But it has a nice effect. Mm-hmm. Okay, the tone poem is based... It's, it's sort of... Um, narrates in music the story of um, this La Mort de Tintagile by uh, Maeterlinck. The play is about a... It's it's actually a marionette, marionette play. It's oh. for puppets. And it's about a wicked queen who murders an entire family one by one. And that's the story. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't read it, so I really don't know how it goes, mm. but it sounds 
pretty depressing. Anyway. Oh, this is a, it's a long work. It's about 26 minutes long. Um, it starts with a chugging rhythm with some long line melodies all above it. So there's a Wagnerian um, influence in this. Wagner was very much in vogue at the time. This was written in 1897. Actually, Debussy had just written Prelude à l'après-midi d'enfant in 1895 or so. So it was the beginning of the end for Wagner's kind mm. of dominance of um, of music. Well, that's not true because... Um, a lot of German romantics kind of kept with him until Schoenberg came along. Um, let's see. So there's an urgency to the beginning and some dramatic orchestral flourishes. The piece progresses in sections with different moods, now calm and serene, now dramatic and forbidding. Uh, new sections tend to burst out or unfold from the previous ones. Um, I said it's Wagnerian or Straussian, like Richard Strauss. It sounds a lot like his tone poems. It, actually, it doesn't sound like Strauss, but it's kind of in that mold. It's it's a pretty big orchestra. There are mm. a lot of nice orchestral colors and lush textures, the kind of thing you'd get in Wagner. And you can just luxuriate in these sounds. Uh, and the melodies are attractive, too. This is a very appealing piece. We first hear the viola d'amore just past the eight-minute mark, or at least that's the first time I heard it. Mm. Um, it's a unique sound, it's something like a squeezing from squeezing kind of uh, string sound. Yeah, yeah. It's a it's it's from the Baroque era, and it's like a like a violin. It was held under your chin, but it still has like a, if you know what a viol sounds like, um, mm. it's kind of like a viol that you put under your chin, so it's smaller. It has that kind of so it's higher, like Russ said, a squeaky kind of sound. Um, it's something from older times, so I guess it represents... Okay, in the original version of this work, there were to two Viola de Morte, and they represented two of the characters, Tintagil and his sister Ygraine. Um, I'm imagining this one represents Tintagil, or maybe both of them. Okay. Um, let's see. This is, so this is a revision that we're hearing here. Um, the instrument sounds um, rather forlorn in this setting. It's a bit nasally as a string sound. Um, it seems to play modal harmony at least part of the time, just adding to the uh, antiqueness of the uh, of, of the instrument and what it's representing in this piece. It, it doesn't really sound of a piece with um, the rest of the work. I mean, it's playing material that fits in, but it's just the sound of it is just stands out. There's a particularly pretty effect just past the 12 minute and 30 second mark with the strings playing a hushed tremolo motion while the viola d'amore plays on its rougher sounding lower notes. Um, some pretty adventurous uh, orchestration here. The material around 14 minutes reminds me of Debussy's La Mer, which was written seven years later. Mm. And we hear uh, Tintagil's death just past the 21-minute mark, the pounding percussion sound that you hear there. After that, the music gets funereal and shell-shocked. The rest of the work sounds like a memorial, and we hear the viola d'amore again at the end. Maybe that's his grieving sister, or maybe it's his ghost come back. I can't really tell you. Um, but, yeah, work that's worth um, checking out. Yeah, it's, this is really uh, fun. Listen, it's cinematic, uh, wide, sweeping themes, great brass. Uh, you've got all these tonal colors. There's some nice oboe in there, some harp. 
adding to that, uh, you know, uh, drum explosions, some hmm. bass clarinet figures and lines. So he really uses the whole palette of the orchestra and takes you on a little journey, uh, you know, as a tone poem uh, kind of should. And even if you don't know the story, what's going on, it'll sort of create a vision of something uh, going on in your head. So uh, it's really pretty and exciting uh, all at the same time. Yeah, I enjoyed this one. Yeah, the next work um, is by Carl Ruggles, and it's called Evocations. Um, this was originally a piano work, <laughs> if you can imagine. Oh, no, I can't. <laughs> <laughs> and this orchestral version is a little expanded. It's from 1943. Carl Ruggles is a composer that I've often been kind of fascinated by. He's kind of one of those odd personalities, sort of like uh, Hector Berlioz and uh, Charles Ives. Uh, are and he knew Charles Ives. In fact, and both were Americans. Of course, he was a salty New England modernist who alienated admirers and would-be disciples alike with his caustic <laughs> remarks, casual racism, and steady use of profanity. He's like a sailor. This guy, you know. Um, he lived for ninety-five years, probably because he did all those things. Yeah, I think yeah. when you. I think when you're kind of a Hamlet type, you die young. You're kind of holding mm. all your feelings in. He just let everybody know. He's kind of like uh, Ann Coulter, I guess, mm. <laughs> for his time. Or what's his name? Rush Limbaugh. He was like a composing Rush Limbaugh, I guess you could say. Mm. Um, he finished only a little more than an hour's worth of music in his life, and yet he's considered one of America's greatest composers. Go figure. <laughs> <laughs> Less than an hour. I guess one CD. You have mm. all of his music. Um, um, he was friends with Henry Cowell. I want to make sure I got his first name right. Henry Cowell, right? Who we're also going to hear on this album. Um, there's a story that Henry Cowell tells about him, where he stood outside a studio while Ruggers, Ruggles hammered away for at least an hour on one massive piano chord, again and again. <laughs> this big piano chord. And when Cowell asked what he was doing to that chord, what are you doing to that chord, Ruggles? Ruggles replied, I'm giving it the test of time. There you go. <laughs> There's also a version of this work for solo piano, which Cowell continued to revise from, not Cowell, I'm sorry, Ruggles continued to revise from 1934 to 1953. Um, the critic John Rockwell prefers the orchestra version because he says, it gains in purpose and variety in its orchestral form. Okay, let's go through this. It's pretty short. It's only 10 minutes long, and it's four movements. The first movement is a largo. Um, the first, it's two and a half minutes. The opening features an arpeggiated, I think, major sevenths is what I'm hearing here. I hope my ear is still good. Jeez, I need a keyboard. And this, so it kind of sounds, there's a certain harshness to it. That major seventh never resolves. Um, and this figure acts as the building block to the entire movement, which grows in force and power. Um, there's something elemental about Ruggles' music. It's like a force of nature. Um, you can hear it in this piece. And uh, in his most famous piece, uh, Sun Shredder, you can hear it as well. That's not, which is not on this album. It climaxes about at about the one minute and 20 second mark and then quietens to the end. So the brief movement is scored as an arch as far as volume is concerned. It's like a volume arch. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then we're just over with that. Then we get to the second movement, Andante con Fantasia, which is only three minutes long. This sounds like a lot like Stravinsky to me in the beginning, and it's long after Stravinsky's um, 
um, works from the uh, 1910s, his ballets. Um, it sounds like one of the quieter sections of the Rite of Spring, if you think about the beginning of uh, the second tableau. The melodic material circles around. There are some very cool harmonies in the brass, again, reminiscent of, De of Stravinsky. It doesn't have Stravinsky's rhythms, though. That's really the, the big difference. This builds to another huge climax in volume at the halfway point and then tapers off. There's a repeating arpeggiated figure at the end, and I think it's a, a major, I don't remember now, it's a major seventh, I think. It's a pretty harsh sounding, unresolved chord. The third movement, Moderato Appassionato, very brief at a minute and 38 seconds. It starts powerfully with loud, dissonant chords, a harsh sounding movement, but none the worse for that. It ends with a chord made of pure granite. <laughs> it can... <laughs> A chord that can crush houses. Anyway. Anyway, the fourth movement, Adagio Sostenuto, three minutes, eight seconds. Beginning quietly with a glimmering tone in the winds, which shine through the texture like a guiding star. There are some harsh but appealing harmonies surrounding this melodic material, and there are some wonderful ear-splitting moments when the loud and harmonies pierce through. A big crescendo comes. Again, this reaches a climax halfway through or just past, then suddenly quietens after a pause. The final chord just stops after being held for a bit. This, If you're, if you're a teenager, this would be a great piece to scare your parents with. <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was kind of new and different when it came out. It's a little, it's, it's very, not kind of what you think about. I, I liked it. I have to say, but I'm kind of familiar with Ruggles' music, and I had a friend who really turned me on to him back in the day. Well, I wrote, uh, it's not terrible for an atonal piece. <laughs> well, it's atonal, yeah. yeah. Uh, I don't well, know that, is it atonal? It's, it's, yeah, well, chromaticism, you know, it, it's, it's chromatic, not, it's but not it's not conforming to a key, it's moving around. Uh, yeah, things, it's also so. not resolving to anything, because yeah. so, those, um, those, like, but dissonant chords remain unresolved. So it surprises me that it was, you know, a piano work because to me there it would lose a lot of the appeal, uh, yeah, I would think which so I too. wrote in that what made me uh, enjoy some of it and following it was the use of the tone colors. Uh, so I thought the scoring for the different parts of the orchestra was what drew me in you know, the changing instrumental colors. And that would be lost on the piano uh, pretty much uh, there. Um, in addition to that, I like the voice movement. So even mm. though it's chromatic and not terribly melodic by any uh, yeah, know, it's definitely not traditional strength, the, the movement of the voices, although chromatic, was very interesting and combined with good use of dynamic contrasts. So the tension and release and... Uh, sort of uh, lyrical nature of the lines of the composition I found interesting. Uh, and that pulled me through, you know, sort of some of the grating harmonies and, and things like that. So it was, you know, moderately interesting to me, you know, not being able to say that it's uh, pretty in any, in any place. Uh, but uh, the composition sort of pulls you through on the journey. That's about the yeah. best I could say for it, yeah. Okay, I enjoy, I enjoy a nice grating harmony, I have to say, and so, as long as it's not all that, you yeah. know what I mean? As long as it goes somewhere from there. Because it it's, it's like uh, having a nice spice on your uh, mm. on your food there, you know, a little paprika, you know? 
Anyway, track six, Howard Hansen, um, born in Wahoo, Nebraska. Wow. He was of Scandinavian heritage. Nebraska, That's you don't really get many uh, composers coming from there. No. This is a piece called Before the Dawn, Opus 17, 1920. This is a world premiere recording. Um, Hansen, Hansen was very young when he wrote this, and it won him the Prix de Rome, um, a prize that um, I, I think Debussy won this. Ravel never won this prize, but he tried a lot. And um, it, it was a very coveted prize. You got to study for three years in Italy, which um, Hansen did. And he wrote his first symphony in Italy, and when he returned to the U.S., he led a successful concert in Rochester, New York. Wow. Yeah, and was appointed head of the Eastman School of Music and remained there for 40 years. Mm. You know the Eastman School, right? Absolutely. Yeah, right up right up in your uh, neighborhood there, Neck I think. of the woods. Neck of the woods. Yeah, you know what? I would have put this one first on the CD. Because uh, yeah. I, I liked it, but it, after uh, listening to the uh, Loeffler, it's kind of a letdown uh, yeah. because it doesn't have... Uh, you know, it's got some interesting things in it, and well, I guess you know it before the dawn, right? Uh, so it sort of evokes that image of like a first light, uh, pre-light coming kind of thing. Uh, yeah, there is a very kind of Sibelian sort of uh, quality to it. Yeah. Um, in fact, he got compared to Sibelius a lot to his detriment, and it's not really fair because he wrote a lot of really interesting sounding symphonies. They they do have mm. that kind of long sort of breathed um sort of yeah. um, woodsy sort of feel to them and they're worth hearing um this particular one he was very young when he wrote it it starts dramatically and this has a set it's interesting that the program i think the reason they put this here instead of first is because it has a a seventh chord a, a major seventh in the melodic figure so it followed from the uh, uh what we were hearing in the ruggles so it, it, it kind of it's almost like picking up where Ruggles not where he left off but with something another direction from something he did this is more tonal and melodic um, and very lush sounding lushly orchestrated which is the case with most Hanson works for orchestra it's got a bit of a Wagnerian feel to it especially when you hear the creamy brass through all of this you hear a repeating figure sequenced in different registers there's a lot of sequencing uh, sequencing is when you t have this you hear it a lot in Beethoven's Fifth Symphony it's the same figure uh, being played starting on different tones um, it's something that um, students make a lot of use of obviously because it's a way to build up the music a lot and as we said Hansen is very young here um, at 3 minutes and 16 seconds the figure leads to a new section there's a lot of sequencing of melodic figures in this work, and uh, he has a good ear for orchestration, though, and he did really. It, that only got better as his uh, life and career went on. It's a highly competent work and a very impressive student work, uh, very appealing to the ear, but not especially memorable. It's rather brief at just under seven minutes. Yeah, I like. I didn't know that he was uh, young in his career when he wrote this. You know, so yeah. it was new to me. I, I really thought the woodwinds were pretty, uh, but I thought, you know, compared to uh, the initial piece on the recording, there's not a lot of melodic development 
uh, as you say, there's, you hear things moving around, but it doesn't really get built upon that much. Uh, and then I guess it matches the theme of Before the Dawn, but you have this dramatic beginning and all this low brass, and then the piece sort of ends suddenly without much going on. I guess maybe that's the daylight that has emerged. Uh, so it's a bit anticlimactic too uh, in in the finishing, but that, that may have been the intent just for this mm. uh, piece. So, yeah. That's okay, we end. Yeah, we end with okay Henry Cowell's variations for orchestra from 1956. Now you better pack your lunch in, for this one. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> kind of a lot going on there. But yeah, a lot going on. Now we had talked about how um, in uh, CPE box variations he had a lot of ideas. Well, I think Henry Cowell. I wouldn't quite call him the uh, 20th century incarnation of CPE Bach, but he's similar in the, the ideas he manages to generate in this work. This is a, quite a, a wow if you're up for it. It's um, <laughs> it's yeah, you know, it's I, a little out of the ordinary. Well, I listened to this album. And I got to this piece thinking, oh, I'm just going to breeze through this work. And I got about five minutes into it. I said, no, this is going to take a separate listen on yeah. its own. So I came back another day to uh, be able to digest it. Yeah, Right. There's a lot going on in this. And I really liked it a lot. Um, John Pizer, a critic, summed up Cowell's early style as tone clusters, great fist and forearm smashes on the keyboard. So. <laughs> So he's part of the uh, inspiration for um, Alberto Narcisi in my novel, Extreme <laughs> Music. Right. Um, Cowell was in... Okay, one of the famous things about Cowell, he was imprisoned at San Quentin Prison in California for four years on a morals charge. A morals charge is also uh -oh. what um, Oscar uh -oh. Wilde went to uh, on uh -oh. trial for. So work out the rest for yourself. Mm. Um he got a complete state pardon, but this it really took a lot out of him afterwards. Um, he also, after all this, he did distinguished work in the war office during World War II, or before that, I mean. And he worked for the CIA, too. Oh, boy. He was a spook. Wow. Uh, I don't know about that, but he was worked for them. I don't know what he did. Uh, this work was written in Iran when the Shah was leader for the – when the Shah was the leader. And, he, and the Cowell wrote it for the Cincinnati Orchestra – at the time, conducted by Thor Johnson. Hmm. A lot of people used to hang around in the Middle East then. Iran and Morocco was a big place to, to hang out too hmm. in the 1950s after the war. Okay, for me, now, you can choose your highlight of the album. It's either the Leffler piece or this one. They're both different. Hmm. But th it, this is also a big piece. And for me, this was just so creative. I just really loved it. It was really... Um, unique. The variations are so creative in so many ways that I was compelled all the way through. Uh, one of the things that makes it stand out is the relative orchestral lushness of the previous piece, the Hanson piece. There's nothing creamy here. It's a complete contrast in its orchestration to that piece. So good programming by uh, Robert Trevino. This starts with our theme, um, and the variations start right away with a ticking bass accompanying the melody. Uh, this variation becomes pretty romantic sounding. Uh, the variations don't follow a pattern. Some are longer, some brief, and they tend to melt into each other without a clear divide. We hear what I think is a xylophone, which is an instrument you don't hear very often, hmm. at 2 minutes and 10 seconds. You'll usually hear a marimba, but I'm pretty sure this is a xylophone. Uh, what do you think? Yeah. What did it sound uh, like to you? Glockenspiel, I wrote. So, Glockenspiel, maybe? Yeah, okay, I think it could so. be. Yeah. 
The glockenspiel, I think, has a keyboard, though, doesn't it? No, I don't think so. No? Yeah. Am I oh, confusing that with It's kind of something? mixed in with a lot of percussion and other things, too. Yeah, there but, are a lot uh, of percussion, yeah. 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 I don't know. Anyway, I heard it as a xylophone. Oh, could and, be. Uh, wish I had a score. Anyway, at two minutes and ten seconds, listen, and you can get back to us and let us know what it is if you have a really musical ear, if you're a conductor. And it's accompanied by chiming percussion. Really beautiful. The orchestration here is fantastic with wind instruments taking over the, um, I'm going to call it a xylophone because that's what I thought it was, a xylophone figuration. The strings eventually um, pick up that uh, theme and this scurrying variation is ended by low strings playing a contrasting melody. I love the way the bassoon matches the low strings sound when it takes over. There are eerie high strings accompanying the bassoon at this part. Uh, the orchestration in this section is really cool. And there are a lot of creative reinventions of the melody in different orchestral colors. This really, yeah, this really is uh, an inventive work. The next section starts at the 7 minute and 50 second mark with a dissonant piano and tuned percussion making odd sounds. Um, also very cool. After this, a straight percussive percussion percussive section starts on a drum hit with the hands i'm thinking it's bongos it's maybe something um, bigger than there's that some, uh, there's some different drums in here yeah. yeah um and then it it works into that huge like timpani pounding out uh right through at the end of the section right uh the xylophone or whatever that instrument was goes crazy as the piano bangs away at dissonant chords, <laughs> uh, the timpani play a hard-hitting rhythm, uh, changing their pitch. One of the cool things about the timpani in this piece is they're tuned like kettle drums, right? Yeah, yeah. And they'll often the um, the player is often hitting them really hard and then like detuning them as the sound resonates. It's got this kind of yeah. sound. It's really cool. I really liked it a lot. I like those uh, notes that, you know, that on the yeah. piano that start here, it's like this endless chain of, of uh, you know, notes that just, yeah. there's no break in them. They just rattle off. It's almost like automated or something. It's a really kind right. of cool uh, effect that it produces. It's, it's almost non-musical in yeah. a musical kind of, uh, you know, selection to be something that's like, almost like robotic in its rhythmic nature it's cool you know the timpani play okay a hard-hitting rhythm changing their pitch this is followed by a complete change of texture an ethereal yeah. string figure yeah with an English horn playing the familiar melody yeah I called it a pastoral bed of low string lushness it's Ooh, like yeah. very nice yeah, yeah there are some gorgeous chiming percussion sounds in this section and mm -hmm. the next section at 13 minutes and 30 seconds starts with a tuba played in its lowest register, <laughs> making yeah. a big sonic impression on you, the listener, mm. in your easy chair um, or on your sofa. Uh, afterwards, the repeating note, the repeated note figures carry the melody. Uh, then massed brass supports strings playing the melody. A fugato section, a fugato section follows from this brief introduction. Remember, fugato is like the beginning of a fugue with voices imitating each other. This all leads to a loud, chaotic, and quite frankly, exciting ending. I liked it a lot. Excellent, harsh chord, 1905, um, uh, that loses a few notes and acts as the ending chord. Um, 
this this work was a treasure in an album of treasures. This is well worth hearing. All it's all music you're probably unfamiliar with. I suggest you get familiar with it. I thought it was great. Yes, great. Uh, that last uh, ending there uh, is really interesting. You know, it's got all these low brass bellows, percussion crashing. It's like this inevitable train wreck coming up. <laughs> and then, what I I love that. It's like this, like you say, it's kind of a, I don't know if you can call it a cadence, you know, I guess in some way it is, it's like uh, that huge dissonant note. It's just, you know, a wall of sound, then it it sort of morphs into a resolution uh, at the ending. Uh, it's really interesting. Um, there's so much going on in this piece. It's it's a very entertaining uh you know, one movement uh, journey through all kinds of stuff. And everything's there. There's every all kinds of uh, pretty sections and uh, interesting rhythm. Uh, really uses the percussion section. Uh, this like Percussionists must get really energized to play this because there's so many cool things to do. Uh, you got your brass. Uh, yeah. Uh, all kinds of just exciting. It's exciting, you know. Uh, it yeah. keeps you on the edge of your seat, uh, wondering what's coming next. So a work that should be performed more often, I would say. I yeah. really liked it's it great. a lot. It's yeah, great. Henry Cowell uh, Variations for Orchestra. Give that, a, especially give that a listen if you listen to only one piece on this yeah. album. But the whole thing is uh, pretty interesting. The whole thing is a really, yeah. is really something. It's yeah, really great. Yeah. Okay, well, we took a lot of time on the uh, classical section here. That's fine, though. Let's go on. This is going to be a longish episode, it looks like. I guess so. Marathon. <clears throat> no problem. All right. On to the jazz side of things. Uh, yeah. Well, I guess the the theme here this week is European jazz musicians. Uh, we've got a variety of things. Two of these recordings are brand new this year, so they're fresh. Uh, the first one goes back to November, though. And uh, as listeners will know, we're kind of suckers for vibraphone uh, oh, here. Yes, we, we love are. vibraphone. And I saw this release came out, and I said, well, wait a minute, another French vibraphonist? Well, I'll have to listen to this. I guess it's uh, like a harpist in uh, classical music. They just all play that instrument. Yeah. yeah. Um, there seems to be kind of a revival of vibraphone uh, in Europe, uh, younger players. We, we've heard a lot of vibes actually added to you know instrumentations on uh you know like a quartet or quintet with a vibraphone as another instrument and that adds a lot uh to the sort of tonal palette uh that you can get but when you have a album with you know where the vibraphonist is the main uh you know melody instrument as well as the harmony it's a kind of different vibe uh for the whole vibe <laughs> you know pun intended there for the whole album uh and uh, i think maybe the french uh, gravitate toward this because of the tone color i don't know uh anyway well, more power to him i really yeah. love this instrument so this one is called explorers it's on the jazz and people uh the french label which we've done a few uh releases from and uh the vibraphonist is alexis valet and uh, the other two players on here do not sound very French. We got Luca Fattorini on the double <laughs> bass. And, well, this may is a little French uh, mix. Antoine Pagunati on uh, yeah. drums. Uh, 
maybe some Italian and French uh, mixture in there. Uh, well, we've done pure vibraphonists. So we had uh, Jorge Rossi in episode 38, a Spanish uh, vibraphonist and marimba player. And he was rather on the kind of sleepy side, I guess we, <laughs> we decided. Uh, and then we heard the the uh, bizarro world opposite the caffeine infused uh, <laughs> Simon Moulier in episode 29. Uh, I, who, I really like that. Yeah, album, his was I really exciting. Like yeah. And uh, Valet maybe comes out kind of in between yeah. uh, those worlds. Uh, Appealingly so. And we've got a couple other uh, is, um, musicians here. We've got uh, Ben Van Gelder on alto saxophone on some of the cuts and uh, a piano player uh Bojan Z, that just the letter Z or Z, uh, that's yeah. what he goes by uh, on uh, piano. And now, uh, now that uh, Van Gelder name is pretty famous. Is he related to the famous I don't think uh, producer? So. No, he's European, no. Uh, not related to Rudy, I think. Okay. And uh, a little bit of just flute texture added in uh, Christelle Raquillet on one track with flutes. Always a good thing to have a flute. Yeah, a little bit of variety. Um, And uh, it features a lot of uh, Valet's original compositions here. Uh, Starting out, uh, first track, Casual Polyglot. Interesting title. Um, Mm. It's a tune that has a nice cycling harmony uh, that gets you into a kind of uh, uh, hypnotic feel. Uh, vibes, bass, and drums on this one, the core trio that a lot of the tunes figure. Valet has a melodic and smooth style you can pick up from the way he plays. Um, he does play harmonies sometimes uh, to back his own lines because he's the only uh, instrument capable of doing that here. But his solo sounds on this track, and my later impression was changed, but he sounds rather inspired by saxophone in his smoothness of lines. Uh, you know, often jazz players uh, will copy their style from a different instrument uh, to give them sort of a different perspective on uh, the melodic direction. And I felt in this uh, performance of this piece, uh, he has sort of a saxophone type uh, sort of uh, melodic way of creating his lines here. Uh, Paganotti keeps a busy beat, uh, chugging in the background, uh, makes for an interesting opening. Track two, another original by Valet, Plaza de la Alfalfa. Uh, it's got vibes, bass, and drums again. Starts with an unusual ostinato bass riff by Fattorini. Uh, maybe you can divide it into eight. I'm not sure. Uh, try counting it out. Uh, Valet introduces the repeating, descending chords of the theme. The section, second section of the theme has long suspended notes in contrast. Uh, Valet's solo on this one is rhythmic and features more intervals uh, rather than the sort of smooth saxophone type lines. He leaves nice spaces to let you digest what you've just heard. I always like that. Uh, you get some spacey sounds at the end until the ostinato bass returns and then just suddenly stops. It's like a music box that uh, ran out of uh, <laughs> tension in the spring. Uh, three, uh, Lille au fleur. 
The yeah, Island good. of Flowers. A uh, nice yeah. title. Another original composition. Here we get piano joining in. Bojan Z on piano. It's an easy gliding, kind of a Latin beat feel. The piano adds rhythmic chords for Valet to focus on running lines in his improvisation. Comes to a stop and resets at about 2 minutes and 15 seconds with some slower piano chords. And then a melody in the piano left hand and bass underneath. So the melody goes below, which is kind of cool. Uh, Paganotti sets the slower groove with cymbals and then kicks while Valet solos over the new groove. And uh, Bojanji jams out next with chiming chord ideas before Valet rejoins uh, to the end of the piece. Um, track four, another original, uh, Any Sunday with Her. I don't know who she is, but if she inspired this one, uh, she must be a dreamy kind of chick or lady so i say she, uh, she's a, chilled out <laughs> yeah it's a slow two-note bass pattern and a ringing vibe intro uh kind of sparse impression uh, van gelder joins in on alto sax for the melody paganotti adds light fills on the snare and cymbals the beat is like a slumbering breath i felt like a if you ever hmm. been next to your partner when they're sleeping and you just observe uh that you know uh, kind of rested breath of someone at peace. Uh, it's like that. Uh, and then Music that is pulse. So intimate. <laughs> yeah, the pulse that goes and Van Gelder skillfully blows slinky lines around that breath without, you know, interfering with the rhythm. Filet gets a solo with fleet runs of his mallets over the stretch time feeling in this kind of inhale, exhale. And the sax joined back in for the final melody. It's a nice dreamy effect. Uh, pretty it tune. This particular track, the the vibrato and the vibes really struck me. It was like really yeah. strong. Yeah, it's nice. It gets that uh, kind of holographic uh, yeah. continuance of the of the tune uh, tone rather. Uh, five. We got a cover, uh, a tune going back to 1956 by Wayne Marsh, Dixie's Dilemma. Uh, go back to the trio. So minus sax and piano here. Valet swings out the melody and imp and improvisations uh, over Fattorini's walking bass on this one. Fattorini gets a solo on here as well, swings it nicely. They trade off uh, with the drums, and Paganotti gets some spot for some drum soloing. So a little more traditional uh, uh, kind of jazz piece. Uh, then we've got uh, another Valet original, Voyager 1 for track 6. It's a trio tune as well. A rhythmically free beginning that Valet winds up and then launches with this kind of spring-loaded phrase, and it it sort of you know pulls back and lets the rhythm go ahead. Uh, he reloads that phrase. They break out into a fast tempo, and you can hear Valet's vocalizations along with his soloing on this one. He's getting into it. It's a very short track, though, two minutes and 49 seconds. Just when it was getting uh, warmed up, it's over. Uh, that goes into a kind of thematically related one so we got voyager one and then the next track is explorers uh also an original long tones on the sax introduce this one uh he's joined by valet the piano joins in uh giving more rhythmic movement uh before the bass and drums come in with a kind of a bossa feel rhythm the lead is passed from piano to vibes and then sax for shorter solos and then they repeat that sequence several times so rather than each player taking an extended solo they have a little shorter uh sort of revolutions of solos and uh, the harmonies in the tune do have a searching quality uh that 
sort of moves them along, uh, kind of matches the title of Explorers. Uh, then we've got a Wayne Shorter tune, uh, Fall. This gets a hypnotic rhythmic piano intro and an, again, a kind of Latin feel to the beat. Uh, it chills out a bit as Valet joins in on the vibes. Uh, it gets quiet for some bass noodling by Fadarini and Bojan Z plays a kind of pretty chiming thing above before taking a solo with zipping runs and interesting rhythms. This guy has a very quirky rhythmic sense uh, in his piano playing uh, that kind of gives him an individualistic style. Vallée has a nice flowing solo as well. Uh, here we get a little more uh, jumping back in time with kind of a bebopish tune, Dr. Jackal by Jackie McLean, the great uh, alto saxophonist. Uh, the piano sits out on this one. Saxon vibes share the melody together. It's a nice effect. Uh, Vallée gets a swinging solo. I think sometimes his lines sound more like piano and sometimes like sax, as I said. Um, here you get a kind of combination of ideas, uh, maybe more piano-like. Van Gelder uh, is next with the sax solo. He builds up from shorter kind of disconnected phrases uh, to stitch things together. And then sax and vibes trade off with drums for a go-around before repeating the melody. So we're more in a uh, kind of bop, post-bop uh, feel here. And... Then we've got uh, another original by Valet, Hats and Cards, track 10. It's a melancholy-sounding ballad. Valet takes it around once, then Van Gelder joins in on the melody. Bojan Z is back on the piano, and he takes the first solo with some surprising accents and, again, this quirky sense of rhythm. Uh, vibes and sax join back in on a melody line uh, and before they trade off solo sections. Uh, and it works up into a slow burn of exchanges before it fades away. And the final track, another original by Valet, What's Next? It's a slow, funky groove set by the piano. Drum, rim, clicks, and bass uh, give it a, that groove. The vibes come in with the melody joined by sax. And here we get uh, Christelle Raquelet on flute, uh, just joining in as kind of a texture. Bojan Z gets a piano solo figure and again shows his quirky and inventive sense of rhythm. The winds come back for the theme and then it quiets down to the end over the groove with just some piano tinkles for a little spice on the top. So I thought it's a recording. It does have a nice overall vibe. Uh, with the, all the vibraphone and tone colors. Valet shows a smooth style. Uh, he's got a, agility and intensity in his solos. Uh, his original tunes have nice variety, uh, and there's some interesting cover choices on the couple tunes here. And why not? You can always use some vibraphone to chill out in your jazz listening, and the French seem to be taking an interest in a younger generation. I don't know much about... Uh, him otherwise i looked up but couldn't find a lot in online about his uh, background or anything but uh it's a enjoyable recording if you like vibraphone sound check it out yeah and good for him and good for uh the french for taking up the vibraphone it's just such a a welcome sound it's uh, it's something from my childhood i remember hearing uh yeah lionel hampton records and cal jader was another one he was like a california yep. cal jader so i remember at the time um yep. th who else was there, there was some, terry uh, gibbs uh, what we did you know, uh, we did Jerry him, gives yeah. uh, tribute to his father, um, Lionel Hampton. Uh, and you got, right. of course, modern guys, Gary Burton and uh, lots of players. Yeah. Uh, but it sort of disappeared for a while. Uh, yeah, you know, kind of like the Hammond organ, right? We talked yeah. about that before. This group doesn't sound terribly, um, you know, 
I, they, they, well, they don't sound French. You know what I mean? You can, Not the, particularly. Fr- the, there's no. a certain sound. There's kind of like a, a kind of like hazy softness to it. But I don't get any of that here. No. It's maybe the international ensemble kind of brings a yeah different. It was good. I liked. I liked yeah. this. Um, just an enjoyable album. It's just I guess. nice. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I get that yeah. vibraphone sound. Uh, it's an interesting instrument. Like I said, uh, in the hands of a skillful player, it can be melodic and, uh, you know, sort of linear following lines like a sax player. Mm. But with the multiple mallets, uh, you can get huge intervals, even more so than you would with a piano uh, because, right. you know, you're limited with your fingers. So, you know, and you've got, you know, two mallets in each hand, however they do that. And then, measure out those intervals it must take a special skill uh to do that but you can get some interesting effects that you couldn't get on a piano uh because you've got you know these wide spaced intervals and uh you know super percussive kind of hits and things like that so you can do cool things with it uh always makes me interested in the possibilities yeah we we love we love the vibes as much as we love cpe box music anyway Onwards. One of our favorite <laughs> instruments. Uh, next yeah. is a nice find I I got. This is a new album this month, and uh, we've oh, not twenty twenty two twenty twenty two January. We have not uh, yet on this podcast had jazz from this country. We've done a lot of European jazz, uh, particularly France, Italy, uh, Scandinavian countries, but here we've got a player from Hungary. Okay. And this is uh, on the Stunt record label On the Move by tenor saxophonist Gabor Bola. Uh, so here he is on tenor and soprano sax as well. We've got Robert Lakatos on piano, Daniel Frank on bass, and Billy Drummond on drums. Uh, so Bola uh, taught himself to play the clarinet. Uh, from the age of 10 and by the age of 12 he won the Hungarian music school competition <laughs> for Jeez. the whole country so he's going to have bored with a lot of talent uh, he got to know jazz uh, through and the music can, is. can I just mention that um, Hungary is really well known for having like great musicians yeah. and uh, yeah. that they're really you know with the, the the List Academy and stuff like that they're uh top rank so to win a award yeah. like that there is really quite an accomplishment yeah so he must have uh, had a lot of talent uh he got to know jazz through his parents uh, music and then he switched to sax at the age of 15 uh robert Moloshik from the hungarian state radio uh discovered and promoted him uh and a few months later he was playing with uh, hungarian jazz greats uh at the jazz festival in spain and uh, then in 2004, he worked as a guest soloist with the Vienna Art Orchestra. And later, as his uh, jazz career started to develop, he worked with uh, players such as David Murray, Benny Golson, Johnny Griffin, and Roy Hargrove. So mm-hmm. had a great rising up in the jazz world. And if you listen to this album, you'll see why. He's got a very mature uh, jazz concept, uh, great technique, and lots of taste. Uh, so we start out with an original of his, Monkey Donkey. 
Good name. Nice name. Uh, it's a slow halting. Mon- Mon- monkey spelled without the E, by the without way. Without the E, yeah. yeah. Monkey. Monkey. So maybe monk as in monk like monk. Monk like donkey. Yeah. It's a slow halting start to the melody, maybe monkish. Uh, turns bluesy and settles into a medium swing. Uh, Bola shows his strong sense of swing and bop phrases in his solo here. Uh, well connected ideas and a relaxed approach that matches the, um, the atmosphere of the tune. He's got a thick tenor sound but he's got a softest attack softish uh so the beginning of the notes uh, are you know not so harsh uh interesting blend with the overall thick tone that he has lakatos gets a piano solo he gets bluesy figures a clear right hand articulation on running lines and uh, finally frank has a relaxed bass solo before they repeat the melody uh, another original Two, love is love. It's a fast swinging tune. Uh, the melody sounds somewhat familiar, uh, like you've heard it before, although you probably haven't. Uh, Bola blows through the melody easily at first and then gets more intense in tone uh, as he works into his improvisations. Uh, Drummond varies the feel of the beat, changing up his cymbal approach and fills for different drive once things get moving. Lakatos adds a lot of rhythmic variety between the running lines in his piano solo, and then Drummond gets some solo space as well. He keeps the cymbal going and works sparsely around the kit, building up anticipation as he gets heavier. And Bola comes back with the melody and some final improvisations. Uh, three, we're going to switch to a cover of a Billy Strayhorn tune uh, that's been played a lot, Chelsea Bridge. It's a very slow ballad for Bola to show off some breathy tone. Lakatos builds rolling figures under uh, Bola's melodies uh, that show off a relaxed maturity. Lakatos gets a little piano interlude himself, but Bola is back soon. Then the others drop out for a few phrases before the final chords. It's a very pretty uh, rendition of this tune. Uh, tr- track four, another Bola original, Blue Tarif. It's a free, busy beat and piano intro that set the atmosphere on a modal tune, and Bola breaks out the soprano sax for this one. Uh, he gets more harmonically adventurous in a short solo. He passes it off to Lakatos uh, for a piano solo, but then he comes back for a longer and more uh, freely improvised solo. Uh, as we were saying uh, this episode with the dissonance when we talked to take your dissonance like a man uh, so he's gonna, <laughs> we didn't mention that that's yeah, kind we of uh, mentioned that yeah, in the other piece that's what the, but uh, Carl, yeah, so he Carl pushes Ruggles. the harmonic boundaries uh, he's obviously swallowed his Coltrane vitamins and uh, David Liebman pills uh, to get into that groove here uh, all cool uh, Frank and Drummond keep everything flowing uh, with a nice uh, groove underneath uh, then we've got a Thelonious Monk tune, We See. Now, one of Monk's fun, quirky, kind of cycling melodies that comes round and round. Uh, interestingly, on a Monk tune, the piano sits out <laughs> on this one, but you get kind of that uh, Sonny Rollins uh, type of pianist thing going on. Uh, they have fun mixing up the tempo as they go through the tune. Frank keeps a nice chug on bass to push things along and Bola swings hard and he flies through with lots of 16th note figures Uh, and uh, Frank has a more aggressive solo on this one as well another cover for track 6 Lament by uh, J.J. Johnson trombonist it's a soft even beat bossa like uh, feel on this tune 
Bola keeps the lines charged with passionate weaving ideas. Lactos is a pretty solo on this one as well. Drummond, it's a lot of variety in his drum textures that prevent it from forming a familiar Latin beat. So uh, when I say it's bossa-like, it never settles into that repetitive kind of thing. No, it's the beat is constantly uh, sort of... Uh, moving around uh, although it f has the even quality it's got a sultry mysterious kind of ending to it uh, so nice tune another uh, cover tune for seven by from uh, Ellis Marsalis the patriarch of the Marsalis family uh, at the Haven it's got a swinging melody uh, indeed here set off nicely to Lakatos's syncopated chords Bola swings really hard He's got a passionate solo, uh, gets intense uh, tone on this one and articulation for emphasis wherever he wants it. Uh, Lakatos stitches together kind of disjointed lines into longer connections in his solo and uh, sax and piano trade off with drums to give Drummond some fun time on this one as well. And uh, track eight, another Bola original blues on the move. It's a mid-tempo swinging uh, bluesy tune, but it's a 24-bar structure. Um, Lakatos solos first, and he pulls off some speedy runs uh, in his ideas. And then Bola has some fun with uh, false fingering and gets a little more harmonically adventurous lines uh, in and out of the blues sort of feeling places in the tune. And... Uh, the album ends with an alternate take of Monkey Donkey, uh, the first tune on the album. Uh, Bolo Solo is uh, a little more bluesy and hotter than the first take that they uh, decided on. Uh, and some nice prompting from the fills by uh, Drummond uh, here as well. And Lakatos' solo is different from uh, the uh, original take or the one that they chose for track one here so it's kind of fun you can compare uh the two and spot the differences in the solo and wonder why uh they chose the first one but this one was also good enough to uh include as an alternate so yeah, yeah. um overall i thought uh pretty interesting to have uh some uh, hungarian player on the scene in the jazz world uh, i'm sure there are many that i uh, just don't know uh, their names but uh, bola uh has a very mature style he's uh, got the concept down of uh you know swing uh hard bop well also more freestyle jazz he's got the complete package uh a nice tone uh a mature quality about his solos a hot player uh yeah really cool i want i want to hear more of this guy yeah, the the uh the two monkey donkey tracks. I I had that the first one was really slinky. That was the word I used. There was a kind of yeah. sexiness to it. And I think they wanted to start with that sound. Could be. Yeah. Um, another thing I liked about this album was the album cover. He went for this really retro looking cover yeah. with him tinted in red. Yeah. With his cool. saxophone, and that really attracted me too. I'd like to see that come back. I really yeah, cool always album cover style. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, enjoyable. Yeah. I like this one too. Yeah. So a hot player. Uh, Hot player. Out of Hungary. And uh, I'm sure we're going to hear more from him because he seems to be on fire. Fire. On fire. And one right. that I had been waiting for to come out, uh, and it was out this month, uh, on Crisscross Records, Misha's Wishes by Misha Tsiganov. 
Russian pianist uh, who has an interesting story, the real American dream story. So he uh, got to the U.S. from St. Petersburg in 1991 uh, and uh, as he calls it, starting at point zero, uh, they <laughs> publish it. Uh, there's a life. His life story was published, I think, in book form. Uh, he he had been offered a scholarship to Berkeley uh, Music College uh, in Boston, but when he uh, arrived uh, in Boston, he discovered that there was a misunderstanding about the scholarship, <laughs> and uh, it paid for most but not all of his tuition and uh, he didn't have the cash to make up for the difference uh and so he got uh into a foreign country he's got no work permit and uh not much else he can do so he started uh, collecting money <laughs> in the subway stations uh and doing anything he could to, to uh make uh, money but the sad thing was that he already had three college degrees in Russia, uh, one from the Mussorgsky College of Music, and had already played in major concert halls in Russia. And uh, mm. he was uh, down and out in the U.S. Um, eventually, I guess he figured out his uh, Berkeley situation. Um, and then uh, he moved to New York after one semester uh, to take a job with a decent salary at a Russian <laughs> restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, he played there for uh, eight years, uh, but oh, he says man. he didn't play the classical music that he had studied from age six, and he didn't play the jazz that he had chosen to learn. He instead played restaurant repertoire, <laughs> whatever like, that is. Like a flock of seagulls I guess, stuff like I don't know. Um, but anyway, he eventually, story. He eventually uh, found the right people and uh, moved up. Uh, to make connections in the jazz world, playing with uh, greats such as uh, Chico Freeman and then uh, Joe Chambers. And uh, he got his first album as a leader uh, in 2007. And this is his uh, fourth on the Criss Cross label. And so here he is on this album, uh, piano also bringing in some Fender Rhodes sneakily in some compositions here. Uh, the other uh, Russian musician that we've featured a few times on this podcast, one of my uh, favorite trumpet players, Alex Sipiagin, uh, who plays a lot of flugelhorn on this one, actually. Uh, Seamus Blake, uh, up and coming. Uh, well, he shouldn't say he's still up and coming, but uh, he's uh, heard on lots of uh, recordings these days on his own and other projects. And who we, we've decided to uh, label <laughs> uh, a bassist who seems to be everywhere these days, uh, Boris Kozlov. Uh, we've thought of him as the Russian Ron Carter. Uh, he's he's, he's got to be. He's yeah. on every recording that Ron yeah. Carter isn't on now. Yeah. So because he seems to be on everyone's recording these days. Yeah. And he should be, too, because his bass playing is awesome. Um, and he's... I think Ron Carter is he's played on more recordings than any other bassist. Twenty five hundred like recordings or something yeah, ridiculous. So like I that. think Boris yeah. Kozlov's the only one with a shot to yeah. one day overtake that, depending on how old he is. I'm not really sure. So we've heard uh Kozlov with uh, uh Art Hirahara. We've heard him uh a couple of weeks ago with um David Kikowski uh, right. uh in uh Austria Trier. We heard him with Dave Kikowski uh as a duo. Uh, right, in right one on of our there. early episodes, right and there, um, yeah. I think at least once or twice more on the podcast, he's been in the lots of recordings. So yeah, he's, he's everywhere, just always appearing. Yeah, yeah. and uh, rounding out the ensemble, Donald Edwards on drums. Uh, this was recorded. Uh, 
let's see, last year, so it's not a pre-corona recording or anything like that, September 9th, 2021, the Samurai Hotel Recording Studio in New York. Uh, it's uh, Released this year or this, end, end of last year? Oh, okay. No, it released in January. Yeah, just came okay, out so, last yeah. week, I think, uh, 14th or something like that. Yeah. All right, we're into 2022 okay. now. Yeah, so the first tune, uh, an original, uh, Fire Horse. Uh, this one's got uh, rubato piano intro. Uh, the horns and rhythm come in on the medium swing melody. It's a happy sounding tune with some harmonic twists. The final section changes up into a Latin beat, or the final section of the melody, rather. Scipiogen uh, is up first for a solo. Uh, shows off a lot of Freddie Hubbard-influenced ideas, I thought, here. A clear upper register, uh, lots of agility in his runs. Um, Blake's sax solo ends in a cool series of crying phrases. And then Tiganoff uh, shows off uh, his touch and agility. Uh, clean figures in the upper register of the piano in a short solo. Uh, after a melody repeat, they vamp out on the Latin section, and Edwards gets some time uh, for some fast stick work on the drums. Uh, then we go to a very old standard tune. George Gershwin strike up the band. Uh, however, now you're going to see a, unidentifiable. Yeah, <laughs> strike so up the band. One of uh, Tsiganov's signatures is using multiple meters. Uh, in a tune and I really tried to figure out what's going on and it will really bend your brain <laughs> to follow yeah. some of these yeah. tunes uh, so it starts out on this one um, so he reworks the meters to start this tune uh, the melody sections end up in 6-8 after a less clear counting <laughs> kind of meter before that uh, I tried to figure out what was going on and then uh, Scipio Jim bursts out with a swinging solo and that's in 4-4 four, four. Um, Siganoff is up next with a really rollicking solo uh, in this one. Uh, listen to the interesting things his left hand is doing, uh, sort of independent of his right hand. Uh, really cool accompaniment for himself. Uh, they return to the intro meter and melody, uh, which Blake starts his solo over. Uh, he blows up into the upper register uh, over the breezy 6-8 meter that comes out. Uh, after repeating the melody, Tsiganov switches to Rhodes piano suddenly, and they work up a new funky and tricky groove. <laughs> Try to count mm -hmm. this one out uh, for Blake to solo over that plows on to the end. So it's a very unique and interesting arrangement. Uh, strike up the band uh, here. Track three, another original, the title track, Misha's Wishes. Uh, another rubato piano intro. A medium even beat tune uh, with a melancholy mood that goes through nice twists with uh, Blake's sax snaking around Scipio Jin's trumpet lines. Kozlov gets a solo first on this one, uh, and Edwards keeps light drum textures underneath it all. Tsiganov has a short restrained solo uh, with pretty phrases, and then they repeat the melody to take it out. Uh, the next tune, uh, this one is a really cool highlight of the album. Uh, I guess this is a Russian folk song or traditional, but they've altered the title and obviously the... Uh, <laughs> the you have to say this in a Russian accent. I think it was, there was a birch tree in the field. So what? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know what the point is. Uh, but uh, it, it starts out with a drum, quick drum lead-in, uh, very cool modal piano chords uh, start out. Uh, the horns join in and the rhythm switches from straight to swing in the various uh, different sections. 
Uh, Sipijin solos first, squeezing up into the high register for some exciting lines on the uh, a horn. Uh, Tsiganov has a rhythmically charged solo of tight, compact phrases, and the horns come in on the background. Uh, nicer horn arrangements on this album all around. Uh, the horns continue through a cool, arranged section, and then Blake blows a solo. Then the horns dance and trade uh, with the drums a bit. Edwards gets to keep on playing uh, over a, a piano vamp and then the horns join back in. They take it out uh, with once more around the tune. It's a very cool arrangement on nicely worked out uh, horn lines. Uh, doesn't sound like a Russian folk song other than maybe the modal nature to it. Um, after that, uh, track five, another Tsiganov original, Lost in Her Eyes, uh, a pretty rising uh, chord phrases and harmonic twists. It's a, just a short solo piano piece uh, from Tsiganov. Uh, pretty melody and nice phrasing and uh, it's over uh, kind of as a little palate cleanse uh, in the middle of the album. Six, another original, just a scale. This has a repeating sax figure intro uh, into a nice horn arrangement on the melody. It's got a straight beat to this tune. Uh, the accents highlight, uh, highlighted by Edward's hits give it a constant forward motion. Siganov's solo features clear upper register figures. Sipujin solos with a fluid and fat flugel sound. Uh, when he's not screaming up high, he <laughs> has a tendency to not be able to hold himself in the lower register, even when he's on flugelhorn. Um, but he's got the chops to uh, get up there. Uh, and he ties together his phrases over the bar lines. He's a soloist who you know, plays across the normal melodic uh uh, bar phrases. Uh, Tsiganov switches to Rhodes under Blake's breezy solo, and they finish it up with the melody again. Uh, now we're going to get into some tricky meter stuff going on here. Uh, Tsiganov's next original, Give Me Five. Uh, so the piano intro is a fast five-beat time signature. The horns come in with this breezy and uplifting melody. Now the final melody section seems to stretch the time meter. Uh, it's into this repeating phrases that are like in a half time of the original melody, but it's a four beat slow measure and then two five beat measures. <laughs> Figure that out. <laughs> uh, Blake solo is first and the beat is subdivided uh, to a half time of the original five beat. And then Scipiogen is up next on flugel and the beat field doubles up again uh, while Blake adds an ascending uh, backing uh, line to that. Uh, Tsiganov solos with interesting figures, uh, dancing over the time, uh, and his left hand punctuates neatly over the 5-4 feel. Then the four-beat measure pattern, and then the two-beat five after that comes back uh, with the horns as he continues his solo. So he just, he just goes along like nothing's changed, but the, the, everything is Amazing, changed underneath yeah. it. Um, cool. They riff out on that pattern uh, some more uh, for Blake to blow over. Then it shifts back to the straight 5-4 under the sax again and quiets and slows uh, a bit to the end. So this is really interesting uh messing around with time signatures, uh, but keeping everything really flowing over it. Uh, track eight, Hope and Despair, another Tsiganov original. Uh, rubato horns and cymbals with piano tinklings for an intro. A swinging 6-8 feel develops with lyrical horn lines weaving the melody. Kozlov's syncopated bass figures uh, give it some dance feel to it, the whole thing. 
Get some intensity and percussive hits uh, before coming down for a Sipiogen flugelhorn solo with nice smooth lines. Uh, in his solo next, uh, Blake on tenor gets a kind of interesting triplet figure that he works upon uh, as a motif. Uh, and then Siganoff has a tasty short solo with clear articulation. The sax and trumpet trade off, uh, jamming over the melody section for a bit, and it comes to a rest. And then you get kind of a parallel uh, rubato outro to the finish that matches the introduction section. Uh, now we've got uh, track nine, a Bill Evans cover, Comrade Conrad. Uh, <laughs> Say and, that five times fast. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Now, this is not like the uh, Evans version. You get a really different uh, straight rhythmic feel for the intro. Then it segues into a swinging waltz uh, under the slinky stop-and-go horn lines that they've worked out for this. Uh, and even four-beat comes back uh, for Tsiganov's solo. Features a lot of building rhythmic figures. Uh, back to the swinging waltz for Sipiogen's solo <laughs> uh, that explores the higher register. And then 4-4 four, four again <laughs> for Blake's solo. And they repeat the melody uh, so we can hear the cool uh, horn lines uh, again at the end of the tune. Track 10 and the final track here, another Tsiganov uh, original, Are You With Me? Uh, this is a very slow theme, a somewhat melancholy mood. The horns are lyrical on the pretty melody that has a few rhythmic and harmonic surprises in it. Uh, it's a long theme. To get through the whole melody exposition is three minutes and 45 seconds. Uh, Tsiganov plays a delicate and understated solo. Uh, Sipiogen gets warm and fuzzy with his flugel solo, uh, but he gets some like very smooth, fast lines in there. Uh, they're all part of that big, fuzzy, warm sound. Uh, they move through the melody to the end. Uh, Blake gets some fast and high improvisations as the others uh, drop out a few times to give him a little bit of space uh, before they wrap things up. And uh, right before the final note, you see Kozlov switches over uh, to wrap it up with some bowing at the end, uh, just for a little texture. So uh, yeah, very interesting recording. Uh, if you listen closely, especially in the meters, Tsiganov is a really tricky, interesting player. I wouldn't want to play in his band because uh, you have to pay attention all the time <laughs> well, to what's going on. All that Hungarian schooling. You see, yeah. they're really intelligent people. Yeah. So he's a tasty pianist with a nice touch and uh, subtleties in his playing. Uh, reading his interview, he says he doesn't want to show off or try to like prove anything anymore. Uh, and you have a sense that he's obviously very technically gifted, but he errs on the side of being tasty and making his notes count, which I think uh, shows off in this recording. He, he leaves a lot of space. Uh, he doesn't overplay at all, but he picks his uh, notes and ideas uh, really tastefully. Uh, his compositions are fresh and interesting too. And as I said, he's a master of changing meters in one tune, which must keep all of the band members on their toes and paying right. attention all the time. It's a tight unit. Here, I always like to hear Scipion Jin solos and, uh, yeah, with uh, Kozlov adding underneath uh, there, and he works well with Edwards here, so the rhythmic bass is good. And, uh, you know, just give it a relaxed listen. Uh, you'll enjoy the music, and then listen really closely and see if you can figure out the time signatures uh, because it's yeah. a real challenge sometimes. 
Yeah, it's kind of um, it, this album is kind of a nice bookend to the CPE Bach uh, one that we started the uh, podcast with because it's also complicated and enjoyable, right? In, in the same way, there's a lot uh, there are a lot of colors going on. One of the things I enjoyed most about this is the flugelhorn, which we don't hear enough of. That's another yeah, just uh, sound pretty tone. Kind of, I think of it as sort of like a, a cloudy trumpet. Mm. Sort of. So I really enjoyed that texture on this album too. And I really yeah. liked uh, his story too. That was pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah. So that's yeah. I yeah. I thought this it was complicated, but I again like as I said with the CP Bach, it's kind of uh, rewarding and uh, enjoyable too. It's it's really not a hard listen. Yeah, I think you know yeah. one of the things we've seen with um, uh, some of the, especially the the younger generation uh, of new musicians coming up is. Um, Playing with uh, unexpected meters, strange time signatures, or uh, having multiple flowing time signatures is sort of a, a frontier that jazz musicians are exploring as another element to add variety uh, to music. You know, jazz went through you know, various uh, uh, developments, you know, just like classical music did in its periods, and, and then jazz went in sort of a, a hyperscale rather than by century, by decade. Uh, you know, so you had swing music and then you had the sort of harmonic revolution of bebop. You had, uh, you know, hard bop giving a different sort of rhythmic and more infusion of uh, uh, gospel roots and kind of soul jazz things in there. You had sort of the counter to that with cool jazz getting almost more like a Baroque quality of counterpoint uh in uh, the melody lines. And then you had modal harmony, you know, modal jazz taking a linear approach and uh, in sort of influence of Indian music and then uh, free jazz. Then you sort of had counter-revolution returning to the roots from the 80s with, you know, getting back into the mainstream of uh, earlier styles. And so these days we see musicians experimenting with, you know, more time and other kinds of things like that. And uh, to me, this is kind of scary because when I, when I was playing a lot of jazz when I was younger, they, nobody was, you know, like once in a while the the band would mess with you. You know, they would uh, change up the time signature or go into double time or something uh, just to see if you were paying attention, you know, uh, like that. But, to you know, be switching, you know, from five four to four four, and then to six eight or something. <laughs> I would a hope short they know that's coming up, though. <laughs> yeah, it takes uh, it takes some uh, extra extra ability there. So, um, yeah. and to do it all, you know, fluidly like that is pretty cool. So, um, yeah, interesting selection of uh, things I think in today's jazz picks. So, make sure you give them a listen on the playlist. Yeah, so another. Another enjoyable six albums has come to an end. We need to uh, end this episode so we can get on to the next six. Yeah, yeah. No rest. <laughs> no rest for the no, uh, music. No rest uh, for obsessed. the wicked. Yeah. Or for the obsessed. Yeah. And yeah, obsessive. So this has been uh, episode forty-eight of Adult Music, the podcast with music for the mature mind, uh, bringing you six releases every week. And, sometimes uh, seven. Sometimes seven. Yeah, or, <laughs> or double even eight, CDs. Maybe or sometime. Tricky. You never Mike know. can get in a, a five CD set as one. We'll have yeah. even more. Sometimes um, I pair two that are kind of similar in theme, yeah. too. But I haven't done that lately. So, anyway, uh, it's all in good fun. 
and enrichment of listening. Uh, I don't see anyone complaining. <laughs> oh, I have to listen to more music? Oh. <laughs> oh, too bad. Yeah, so, um, as we said, uh, please do like or subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to us on. Check out the full playlist. You can get everything in one place on Deezer, and it's in CD quality there, too. So that's what we recommend you check us out on. Uh, and if you do have any comments, questions, uh, please do get in touch. Our email address, adultmusicpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, as we said, we've got a new Facebook uh, community page there. Uh, we're just kind of building it up, but you can come over there and uh, comment on episodes and the like. We'll have some extra content coming up there soon. And uh, we're working up to our one-year anniversary and also our 50th episode anniversary so we've got two weeks uh we're going to definitely do that one face to face and do a little celebrating with some barbecue and booze and oh, uh one year yeah that's yeah, right have Coming some soon. fun uh with that i think uh but that'll come up in two weeks so i'm really looking forward to that me too a little bonanza for our uh, 50th uh, episode 50th episode and, uh, first anniversary yeah. All coming up at around the same time. So that'll be up in two weeks, but uh, before that, we'll be episode 49 next week. And so we'll have the playlist up on Deezer probably tomorrow. If you want to check out the music uh, beforehand, uh, we usually get that up on a Monday. So you have a whole week if you want to check the music out before listening to the episode. And we'll be listening to it uh, and picking things apart uh, during the week. So we invite you to do the same. So we'll see you again. Uh, next week for episode 49. <laughs>